Hey, uh, this is uh, Jake Gyllenhaal. And my name is Robert Downey Jr. I wouldn't kid you about that. I play Robert Graysmith in the... And I, Paul Avery. Hi, I'm James Vanderbilt. I'm the screenwriter and producer of Zodiac. Brad Fisher, the producer. James Elroy, king of American crime fiction. Acknowledging this film, it's one of the half dozen greatest American crime films. I love the fact that the first and last character you see in the movie is Mike Mijo. I knew from this moment on, holy shit, strap on. Hmm. I guess we should talk a little bit about how Brad and I sort of got into this. Robert Graysmith wrote the book in 1986 and published it. I read it as a teenager. Uh, I was about 15 years old in 1992 up in New Hampshire at St. Paul's School and fell in love with it. And just the whole concept of a guy like Robert being so ill-equipped to come at a case like the Zodiac. And when I got out of film school and sold my first script, one of the first things I did was, was try and look into the rights to the book and found out that Disney had been trying to make this into a movie for years. Um, and they had a script by a guy named uh, Shane Salerno, which I've never actually read, but he's a very good writer. And so I sort of gave up on it. It was always kind of like my, my great white whale. And I went, okay, probably not going to happen. And um, met Brad and we made a movie called Basic together. And when that was winding down, Brad called me up and he sort of said, you know, if you could do anything, what would it be? And I said, well, there's this book called Zodiac that uh, I read in high school and, and fell in love with, but Disney's doing it and or, or Disney owns the rights. And, you know, nobody in this town ever lets uh, rights really lapse. And so, um, you know, kind of forget about it. And a couple weeks later, I remember I was actually I was standing outside a restaurant that no longer exists called Orsini's and you called me and you said, I've got the, uh, I've, I just spoke to Robert Graysmith. I did. Yeah. This case, when I was a youngster and I was 21 in 1969, slipped by me despite my you know, copious curiosity into all things criminal. And so when I started talking to Brad about it, it was all new. And so the shock of the movie was literal. I did not know the case except the basic premise, and then the specifics of them enfolded. It's a luminous work of art, and I knew from the first moment. That surprised me that you didn't know the case. I was bombed out of my fucking gourd. <laughs> I'm surprised I didn't end up as one of that cocksucker's victims. <laughs> I have to say, in watching this sequence, I thought it was a really weird, slow setup. <laughs> I... I, I... In a good way. <laughs> no, you're right. I, f I felt like the, there was, um, I think David kind of played with uh, the audience. Mm -hmm. They knew it was going to, I mean, obviously, you know, it's going to happen. Yeah, but there's just... so many clues to the story right now. I I've seen it, I guess, three times all the way through at this point, And there's so many clues as to all the things that it's so simple right here. If you pay attention to this scene, the entire movie is in this scene. Every clue. Is that true? I swear to God. The things they say to each other, who she is in relationship to him. Oh, that's right. Because it all comes back full circle to the thing. To the At guy, the very, the, very that's end. Right. He's, yeah. The killings are very clinical. Yeah. But they're shocking nonetheless. Yeah. I think, you know, it was really, we wanted to be as non-filmic as possible. I think that, I mean, like it's a, a weird way to put it, but it's, you know, you're dealing with real people. You're dealing with real violence. So you don't want to 
underplay it because, you know, it needs to have the impact, but you certainly do not want to overplay it. There was really no need to be salacious. Yeah. Because they're so, they're so brutal, even as mundane as they are. I mean, here's a guy about to walk up to a car with a couple of teenagers. He's going to pull a gun and shoot them. Yeah. The other thing I think we should just, when we're talking about the killings too, is that one of the first rules that I had was that we would never see Zodiac on screen if there was not a surviving witness or some some kind of account that existed. And because there, there was actually, obviously, this is actually the second um, Zodiac attack in history. And the reason we don't show the first is because no one survived. This, this, this is sequence, when, yeah, yeah, this is when the audience says, oh, that's right. This is a David Fincher movie. <laughs> <laughs> thought maybe it was American Graffiti for a second. And you know, all that blood is CGI'd, in all honesty. That's all CGI'd blood. Wow. Yeah, when you saw the dailies of it, they, they shot, he shot him with like a, an air gun, I guess. And then he CGI'd the blood in after that. It's morality. And again, I state that both as a crime novelist and the son of a murder victim, meaning my mother. It's respectful to the lives the cops, the victims, and their families. Your snout is not dragged through the shit in this film. I hope not. I mean, that was one of the really important things to us was that this this is a real thing that happened to real people. And, you know, as you sort of peel back the layers on it and, you know, the amount of research that, that uh, you know, David, Brett, and I tried to do, you know, you come to a point where you realize there is no complete absolute truth that you'll be able to hit about this. You know, we'll never know absolutely for certain if... A silencer was used here, but we have to make our best guess. Yeah. It's an epic film about unknowability. Mm -hmm. And I sent Fincher a note that Brad forwarded to him the weekend after the film came out theatrically. Mm -hmm. And I said, it's driven by slow moving persistence, defined by unknowing mm -hmm. and doubt. And in the end, you don't know. And as a work of art, it doesn't matter. Mm -hmm. It just doesn't matter. There's such a need. Why do you think there's such a need among at least American audiences for closure, for everything to be wrapped up with yeah. a nice little bow? People want to be distanced by horror. Mm -hmm. They want to partake of it. And they want to partake of it as hyperbole that they know can't happen to them. This film tells you it's unlikely it's going to happen to you. But it could. Yeah. And in the end, you're not going to have a true physical and moral handle on it. So get used to it. And also, I think the idea that, you know, it's it's not always going to be all right, you know. Yeah. And film, you know, as a medium always seems to 95 percent of movies exist in the third act to go. But he got his comeuppance and everything was OK. And they lived happily ever after. And and they didn't live happily ever after. It's a it's a it's a falsehood. And, and I think that this, you know, I think it's it's I think we pay at the box office. You know, we paid, you know, the movie didn't do as well as it would have if there was a great happy ending at the same time. You know, well, people um, yeah. people like escapist fare. People like to get away from real life and like to be reassured. Yeah. I thought it was funny too because the movie clearly is is about taking its time and that's what a lot of people come up to me and saying they've enjoyed so much lately and yet the pace of getting from you and the kid and off to school and there's so this, fast you know, there's this ballet right now obviously of the whole beginning of the first letter going into your arrival at the chronicle the clock out of 
Ross MacDonald described Dashiell Hammett's work as deadpan tragedy, and that's what this film is. It's tragic, mm -hmm. it's deadpan, the people go on. And in the note that I wrote to Fincher, I said that this asks us to re-examine the theme of obsession. The other thing I think is so, what I dig is this idea of we need people like that. There's something, it's not, you know, addictive personality is not necessarily a bad thing. You need guys out there who get so fucked up and so hooked on stuff like that. That's what, a, you know, that's, you know, those are some of the people who keep us safe, you know. I'm an obsessive type myself, and the truth is I've always stayed short of the abyss. Mm -hmm. I possess that kind of circumspection. Yeah. Graysmith didn't go homeless. Graysmith held down a job and relationships with various women, however tenuous, mm -hmm. during the course of this thing. And he put it together. He read, 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 made some interviews, and made connections that nobody else made. Yeah. And God bless him. I don't know why they let Robert Graysmith into this uh, this editorial meeting. We had to. You're, you're the lead. <laughs> <laughs> These are all Graysmith cartoons. These are real, real Roberts. And um... there's nothing in this movie that shouts out this is a period film. It's seamless in that way. I had to write about. I think 30 different versions of what they, what all the reporters were talking about before the scene began. There was a lot of, you know, were they talking about, you know, football? Were they talking about the moon landing was, was what, about a week before this? I mean, it's to try. Chopaquitic. Yeah. yeah. Chopaquitic was. Was right was around, yeah. yeah. Woodstock. Mm -hmm. The other tricky thing was how to how to use the letters, and I mean, because they're so they're so scary, but there's so fucking many of them as to how to you know you knew we had to use the whole first letter. You have to just read it out, but how do you sort of deploy it throughout the rest of the movie so that it doesn't feel like a device, but at the same time, you know, there's a lot of shit that he claimed to do that he didn't. There's a lot of the whole the whole radian thing. There's a whole bunch of stuff. When this first letter arrived, actually, they didn't know whether to take it seriously or not. Yeah. And that debate continued on. And I think the potential significance of it seemed to weigh on everyone as the day got longer. Yeah. It was amazing to be there on the day and looking at the actual typesetting and ink color and passing around. It, it really was quite eerie. You'd have thought that these were just these extended, painstaking scenes. And it's not that they weren't difficult or time-consuming to shoot. But somehow or other we got in this rhythm and actually hearing the words from Zodiac was pretty cool. We worked a scene a lot too yeah, because the normal version of this scene is everybody, you know, they read the letter and everyone freaks out. And I remember David was like, no, you know, it comes in. Well, it's, it's in reference it. to, to a couple of kids that yeah. got killed in the sticks. And I mean, maybe it's the, true or maybe it's a crank or, This you is know. the San Francisco Chronicle. This is the big city. Why should we care about yeah. Vallejo? It's also a pre-media moment in that, yeah, we're into the media era, but there were not glory hound, mm -mm. self-seeking, publicity hound, psycho killers at I mean, that time. Was, he it started it. It was, the, I mean, the, I think it was, I mean, if I'm correct me if I'm wrong, I think it was Jack the Ripper. And then That's him, right, Jack you know, Ripper, yeah, the Ripper. And him, yeah, yeah. And, and um, people didn't do this. And I mean, to the point where 
he doesn't name himself Zodiac until the second letter, but he sure as shit came up with a symbol first. You know what I mean? He was branding, baby. Yeah. It was, you know. Yeah. And God, it's interesting that the banality of evil, the old Hannah Arendt theme, he kills five people in 68 and 69. He yeah. doesn't do it again. Yeah. He becomes, if it's indeed our guy, mm -hmm. just a confirmed pedophile. The letter-writing yeah. campaign began in earnest after what was most likely his last victim, Paul Stein. Mm -hmm. And that's... That's when the entire region started to become fearful of this this psycho killer, this boogeyman that was out there. Yeah. And in in all probability, he was hunkered down, writing letters and probably doing other unsavory things, but not necessarily committing murders. People think now, as a result of all the forensic shows on television, that serial killers always behave in a prescribed fashion, mm -hmm. and they don't understand that there's a, a flaw in empirical thinking. Yeah. And that we're just waiting for the next guy to you know, employ the next psychotic language. Mm -hmm. And this guy killed a bunch of people over 10 and a half months, and that's it. Yeah. And that's what's so sort of, you know, you can't understand about it, you know. Even serial killers at this point are supposed to fit into neat yeah. patterns, you know. Um, the other thing I just – about the about the structure of the film, this I'll probably try and come back to a bunch of times just because, you know, we worked a lot, is that, you know, in a normal, you know, hunting a murderer movie, structurally the deaths are used as kind of carrots for the audience. And I think we tried to be really careful not to do that here. Yeah. You know, the last – you know, the last murder scene takes place, what, 30 minutes into? Very early on. Very early on. And then there's the Kathleen John scene, which is a little later, which is very debatable whether that was Zodiac or not. But it was sort of this idea of, oh, you want to come in, you, you know, you think it's going to be Zodiac and, you know, it's like a, you know, a scary movie. It's No, these deaths are, are really horrible and they're not something for you to enjoy and they're not a little carrot to give the audience, you know, for being patient through the talkie scenes. It's the accretion of the tale. It's the investigatory detail, it's the visuals, it's the letters, the letters, the letters, the letters, the slow build of obsession, the interviews, and the frustration. And it's the accumulation and the of all of these little puzzle pieces that just start to fly at you and start to fly at Graysmith that he collects. I mean, that's really the nature of an, obsess an obsessive person is, you know, they keep everything, they... They, they start to try to do whatever whatever they can to put this whole thing together and make sense of it, even though at the end they might not be able to comprehend it. Each with eight lines and 17 symbols. No breaks between the symbols, denoting different words. No numbers or clues to substitution. These fucking chirons, man. Oh, we had to go through these so many times. We were doing, I mean, like up to release. You remember? Yeah. We were just, just rewriting and rewriting and rewriting the, uh, and I never could make this joke work. It, it's interesting, actually. I'm just, I do want to talk about this one scene because I never, yeah. ever could make this joke work. The breakfast nook. Breakfast nook of Donald and Betty Harden, and no one has ever laughed at it, and I tried for two years to I make laughed. it play. I did when I, I did when I saw it. It was in, it I was incongruous. <laughs> and I laughed when I read it. Tone it's, of this I know, it's such a dorky writer joke, yeah. too, but yeah. it's like, I tried to fucking make the thing work, and it never did. Kills me. It did. If only Brad and I laughed. Brad <laughs> yeah. was not. This is true. If it was for our benefit, yeah. that's enough. You were right, by the way. You didn't give his name. Who cracked it? A history teacher and his wife, Salinas. I like killing people because it is so much fun. It is more fun than killing wild game in the forest because man is... The Look at that fucked up shirt that that kid's wearing. Huh. 
See, the audience is being informed. You're never going to understand codes. Yeah. None of us sitting here. But he does. Yeah. Well, there's the, also the old kind of um, – it's the, the all the president's men, but somebody I can't remember who told me this, but it's the sub movie idea. The idea when you watch a sub movie, there are two ways to write it. You can either write it where you try and tell the audience all the stuff they're talking about when they use the jargon, or you just have the characters use the jargon and the audience eventually goes, Okay, well I know these guys know what they're fucking talking about, so I'm not exactly gonna worry. Right. It's There's context. so much information coming at you in this movie that eventually I think you kind of – hopefully that you have to kind of sit back and go, OK, I'm not going to be able to process it all on the first pass. But if these guys – if I trust these guys and I trust that they know what they're talking about, then I'm OK. All my LAPD homicide comp buddies have seen the film multiple times because they want to live in the investigation. Again, in the accretion of detail, in the interviews, in the moment that maybe, maybe not, Toski thinks – the wristwatch. Oh shit. It's him. Yeah. That's a great compliment. I mean, the fact that um, your friend, too, who I spoke with, is yeah, like Jackson, said, yeah. this is the best, the best I've ever seen at, uh, what our job is on film. Yeah, he said, I was okay. like, I'm done. I can die happy. Yeah. Now. He said, Oh shit. You know, this is my world. Hmm. You get talked, you get tweaked, and the whole thing. And you think about other shit in the meantime, and you got to go home and pour the pork to your wife and live your life. Yeah. See, and for me, you know, I'm a, you know, 31 years old and from Connecticut, I've, you know, never worked. So it's as a, you know, as a writer, you try and, you know, do the best to inhabit the other, you know, characters. And so when people who actually do this for a living, you know. When we screened it in San Francisco for all the, the retired cops and, and the active, active guys, I think that was one of the most oh. terrifying screenings I've ever been through. Well, because... we had, we had, we had Dave Toskey and Robert Graysmith sitting behind us. Robert telling me, right before he saw the movie that, oh, I didn't really read the script. We gave Robert the script because, you know, I mean, he plays, you know, he plays kind of goofy in the film. And we wanted, I wanted to make sure too that, you know, Robert, okay, it's going to be, you know, for all time. I just want you to be aware. I'm not, we're not, we're not giving it to you to let you change stuff, but this is what it's going to be. And called him up a few days later. He said, great, fine, love it. And then right before the screening, um, he goes, I didn't really, I only read the parts with Dave and I didn't read any of the parts with me. And this, I'm going, oh, fuck. I just want to point out that this is the, yeah. um, the exact spot of the location where, where Zodiac stabs Brian Hartnell and Cecilia Shepard. We actually helicoptered in those trees that you see that Zodiac is hiding behind. Those trees had, had disappeared. They fell down. But we had to replant them because they were a big part of the the architecture of the scene. Yeah, and getting this right, and and Brian Hartnell helped us immensely. Yeah, Brian. This movie. Brian collaborated on on every detail of this scene. It's interesting. I mean, memory is something that changes so much over time, and and he um, he was going back and forth between details. So you know, he he said, "I remember she was to my left, but then I remember later on somehow I pictured her on on the right yeah. side." So the police reports were very helpful. David like consulted with with the victims and what the they saw and all. Yeah, yeah, to to have it be almost exactly how it how it went, which I think in a lot of ways makes the scene like I'm not going to say dull, but there is a dullness to the scene that's interesting. Because the glorification of these things for people in movies, for audiences in these movies, is what I think makes it so sensational. And this is just not a sensational moment. Well, and I guess that's the thing, too, is, you know, the obvious choice would be to do a subjective take on what's happening in these scenes, whereas this feels very kind of outside 
the action. Don't get up. I want her to tie you. This is Richmond Arquette of Zodiac number two. Daddy on the in the suit there. Yeah, and um, this was I think this was the first thing we shot. It was, it was yeah, and I remember going up there. This with was you the and, yeah. weekend. I think this was September twelfth. So it's hot as yeah, shit. Yeah, it was. It was the first two thousand five, and um, oh, it was incredibly hot. Yeah, and I, you know, I've been thinking about this since I was fifteen years old. And here we are at Lake Berryessa. Yeah, had you been there? We, yeah, yeah, we had been there throughout multiple times. I mean, as a youngster, did you go up there? No, no, no. I went the first time I went up there was actually with Brad and and Graysmith. The first time we went up to San Francisco to meet Graysmith, um, yeah. and we said, "Hey, could you take us out there?" And he said, "Yeah, I haven't been there in a while." And we went out there, and it was just dusk, and it is one of the scariest places I've ever been. Yeah, it's just there's something creepy about it. There's, uh, I have no people, desire to ever go there yeah. again. People had different reactions about that. Some people said it, it doesn't feel like a bad thing happened here and others just felt like the place was haunted. You can't get away from something like that imaginatively and it's a primer on where your head is more than anything else. As a youngster, after my mother was killed, I got hooked on the Black Dahlia case and used to ride my bicycle down to 39th and Norton where the body was found. It was haunted from the get-go. And then just doing media, going back to that spot, it lost its pop. Hmm. It was when when we went out there for this, actually. I mean, I think being there with, you know, 30 people during, you know, the height of the day is, is different than being with three people there yep. as it's getting dusky. But, you know, it, it's just there's something. The first time we went up it. to the Bay Area, actually, is, is when all of it, the reality of it hit home. Yeah, because we'd been talking about it for a while and, you know, we thought the book was amazing. But going and meeting Robert and then going... Oh, this is where Paul Stein died. Oh, this is where Cecilia Shepard died. I mean, you know, you realize the responsibility doing something like this carries. The other thing, for, for better or for worse, is this was always the scene that grabbed people, you know, when they read Robert's book. And then, you know, when I would sort of pitch it and when people read the script, this is the one that you kind of go, oh, this is just so terrible. And I think it's he does it for maximum effect too. I mean, who dresses up in an executioner's costume and then walks out and goes, everything's going to be fine. I just want your car, you know? It's an explosion of psychotic narcissism and heedlessness and willfulness. And you know there are systemic inequities in the death penalty system, but motherfuckers like this have to die. The Berryessa killing is extremely gruesome but it it also signifies a significant behavioral change in zodiac yeah because he's shooting he shoots the first couple at lake herman road with a 22 we don't dramatize it in the movie as jamie said because there were no surviving victims no eyewitnesses so we'd be making up what happens out of whole cloth but very similar um in mo to the blue rock springs shooting except blue rock springs was done with a nine millimeter no words were exchanged, seemingly clean, almost like uh, execution style. And then at Berryessa, it's it's something more. It's something deeper. That's it's something completely different. Yeah. Much more rehearsed. Um, as much as he probably fantasized about these things before he did them. Interesting that at Blue Rock Springs, he pulled up behind them and then left before about a minute later he yeah. came back. Like he was is that a guy manning up? Is he yeah, getting his nerve up? Is he yeah? But to actually have this this fairly lengthy exchange and to go through the exercise of tying this couple up and 
interacting with them as closely as he did. And then to switch from a gun to a knife, something much more personal. There was a strange evolution that took place. Yeah. His rage is escalating. His need to assert his selfhood is becoming dominant. And that will be all for the news on the 20. And then this happens, then Paul Stein happens, and it's completely different. It's it's removed again. It's the easiest, you know. It's it's, you know. I think Fincher was saying it's, it, you know, you want to you want to go kill somebody. It's going to be a cab driver or a hooker. It's the easiest thing. If you want to just go kill somebody, all you got to do is is find a hooker or hail a cab, and you got instant victim. Well, murders are traditionally, as far as the what we've learned from homicide detectives, usually the easiest kinds of cases to solve because there's almost always a connection of some kind, mm -hmm. jilted lover or you know, some kind of a rage situation. Yeah. It's it's not too difficult to, to put the pieces together. But one of the reasons Zodiac was so maddening was there was seemingly totally random. Oh, this is always, it's interesting because this shot, you know, got talked about a bunch. The reason from a writing standpoint, I did it this way is there was nobody who survived that cab ride. So how do you show the cab ride without being in the cab, you know? Because it, it completely avoids the question, did they have a conversation? Did they sit in silence? And so rather than lying, we got to kind of kill two birds with one stone and, and you know, sort of get the radio call in thing while at the same time not show, you know, not have to make stuff up about what Zodiac did. Well, Brad, you said that the route over there to Washington and Cherry was Geary to Van Ness to California to Divisadero to Washington. How did we know? We, did, we didn't know exactly. We, we looked at the route and kind of, you know, assumed that the... And the, also for the original... The corner on the trip sheet was actually Washington and Maple. Yeah. Um, and we also know from an encounter that took place with Don Falcon and Eric Zelms that Zodiac disappeared into the Presidio um, from Maple. So he went back, yeah. which, you know, suggests to some people that maybe he was parked there. That he had a car, yeah. Yeah. When I first read the script, when it was 110 pages, before it was 200 pages, this scene was always in there. I thought it's such a like great opening to meeting a character. Yes, you know, it's like you're going to buy me a lamp and all that stuff. You learn more than any of the introductions to the characters in this movie, mine, yours, any of them. You learn uh, there's a tremendous you amount totally to be yeah. to be learned in this scene about a character. A, I want to say right off the bat, we love Mark Ruffalo. Probably had the toughest part of the three of us and really played it in a very contained way, which was really goddamn risky to do. And it paid off. Anthony Edwards, a master technician, hell of a guy. Fincher would always tell us, we just watch him. It's not just because he did ER and he directed and he did TV. He's actually a technically proficient actor. Study him. Stop wasting my time. <laughs> Yeah, there's Anthony yeah. Edwards. This is my guy yeah. in this. <laughs> Having been around homicide detectives quite a bit. He's tall. He's implacable. He's losing his hair. He did a great job with this. Yeah, he stole really it. He steals every scene he's in. He just has dignity. Ruffalo's no slouch either. This, this no. was shot right here on, uh, on the corner of um, Washington. Do you want to talk a little bit about this? Because we ran into real problems with with the city a bit in terms of shooting here and so shooting in presidio in the presidio heights, heights. The biggest pain in the ass 
But it's a realistic period crime scene. Crime scenes in motion pictures are almost always hyperbolized. There's cacophony. They're not in the least realistic, and this one is for 1969. Yeah, this is also. I mean, I don't. Know, I don't want to misspeak here, but but I think this is the only sequence that's handheld, and it's very deliberate. You know what I mean? That it's it's suddenly we're walking around the crime scene, and it's a little shaky. It's a little chaotic. The rest of the movie is completely locked down. Ruffalo there is another big chapter in my book. All men have more hair than me. <laughs> When is that hitting stats? <laughs> it's going to be. Yeah. I've been looking forward to that. Yes. <laughs> I want to talk to you about the film yeah. rights. Yeah, but at least I'm tall, handsome, <laughs> brilliant, and hung like a mule. Yo soy el burro. <laughs> you want to give your number? Yeah. I'd do it. That's the tragic fucking thing. They'd have to bleep it out. I know. Yeah. Hey, Pete? Yeah, Dave. You throw over there? Can I get in there? I mean, I like this in any kind of CSI type deal, but just the fact that that they kind of figure something out right away, even by the time that the door on the cab is closed in a minute or so. Got to tell you the truth. Who cares? Because it doesn't matter. They never find him. You know what I mean? Still, they're pretty good. It's nice, though. I mean, there are these all these dead ends. You know, it's a movie of an interesting way—a movie of dead ends. You know. Can I give him this address? Who's got the prayer book? Right here. Washington and Maple. It's one block east. Oh, oh God, that's beautiful! Look Such a that. gorgeous shot. Oh! So much digital. Too. I love this I reverse. Mean, this reverse shot is gorgeous, also. I'm not a the big fire truck. Yeah, I'm not a big CG guy. I think it's I think it's such a crutch in a lot of movies. But David uses it just for storytelling, and that's you know that car um, in the middle of the intersection was actually that's where Armin Pelissetti and, and his partner Frank Beta parked. And Pelissetti was here the night we shot this. He was. Yeah, yeah. Pelissetti kind of walked us through what happened from his recollection. We also spoke to the uh, quote unquote teenagers from across the street. Or middle-aged. Witnessed yeah. the crime. Mm -hmm. Yeah, they were, they were a sort of source on that. I mean, we tried to source this a bunch of ways. The other thing is we talked to, to Bill Armstrong, and, and you know, he would, when he told us it was his birthday, I mean, you just go, oh, that's a gift. That's yes. a gift. Yeah, that's a right gift from the yes. writing gods right there. Who's the older of the two men in reality? Armstrong. Toski was the, the, the junior guy. They'd been, I think, working together for about a year. We could only shoot in Presidio Heights until 10 p.m. We had to be taillights at 10 o'clock. Everything had to be packed up. And, and how many nights, too? It was We were there for a few nights, but m most of that scene was... In Downey. ...pretty brilliantly recreated in Downey. With a lot of, yeah, with a lot of blue screens. And a lot, and a lot of, of amazing work from Digital Domain. It's amazing, because I wasn't, I wasn't there for most, most of it. And, you know, obviously we spent a lot of time, you know, in Presidio Heights, you know, there. And I, I couldn't tell you what's what's real and what's not. You know, the the composite, which you actually don't see very much of in the movie, um, that was created on the basis of the description by the, the kids from across the street, was given so much weight yeah. and became so synonymous with what Zodiac looked like, this man with, with a strong jawline and black horn-rimmed glasses. And the irony of the black horn-rimmed glasses, as we, we learned, is... In all probability, Zodiac actually took 
Paul Stein's black horn-rimmed glasses, which were not recovered at the crime scene, and morbidly put them on as he left, which is really disturbing. Yeah, it's tremendously disturbing, and this is a fact of psychopathy that nobody could ever make up. I mean, a, a man shoots another man with a 9 millimeter, and then not only calmly walks away, but does so with someone's and you if you and look the shirt i mean if you look at the prescription i mean you can see in in the mugshot of paul stein yeah. for his his taxi cab license those are thick lenses <laughs> i mean the th Coke this bottle. is this is a guy with some serious confidence who just barely escaped on on a fluke yeah because the description was incorrect about serious confidence but also i mean you know really just a lucky bastard. I mean, he should have been, this is not, you know, and this was something we kind of came back to over and over again is, is, you know, Brad and David and I, I can't remember who coined it, but had this, uh, this phrase, Wiley Coyote, super, super genius. genius. And it's sort of this idea. And we, we make fun of Robert, uh, Graysmith in the film for it because there is this tendency and Graysmith has it and a lot of, you know, other people who are interested in the case have it to kind of go, this guy was Professor Moriarty. He was the greatest villain. He was villain. the most brilliant he serial killer and he, ever. And he wasn't. He was a guy who got really lucky. And, and, and so, you know, constantly, we wanted to constantly kind of deflate it. You know what I but mean? But at the same time, show how that came about. Absolutely. I mean, you know, the, the media, the San Francisco Chronicle, the Examiner, these newspapers, all of these um, entities that basically took his what he said and 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 mythologized him and and turned him into the object of of fear for all of these people for this city he was a, a obese guy in ill health booze and dope impaired and the luckiest guy on god's green earth and with forensic science at its state today people would have figured out sooner or later that the genesis of the crimes is Vallejo because they started there and these guys always kill initially and I believe this this is a, a bit of empirical lore mm -hmm. yeah. about serial psychopathy that I happen to buy they kill where they are because that's where they find the stimulation that's where the shit turns them on it had to start there and they'd have been all over that place and they would have rousted every pervert on God's green earth we actually hired um, a couple of contemporary forensic experts, a geographic profiler named Kim Rosmo and a uh, behavioral profiler from the Department of Justice, Sharon Hagen, to, to take a look at the case again um, using contemporary techniques. And, and the, it was really fascinating what they came up with. And they believe that, that the person responsible did reside in Vallejo. For those reasons? Yeah. Yeah, the genesis. There, there, there was also there was a lot of detail that Zodiac used to describe when whenever he was questioned about whether he was responsible, he was asked to provide more details and the description about the way that the moonlight, you know, is is reflected and and how difficult it would be to see around Lake Herman Road in the middle of the night talking about his expert marksmanship. He did it, he described it in such detail. Hmm. That was Someone Typical familiar someone with the extremely the familiar with that with that area. Right. He called uh, properly uh, the Vallejo Police Department when he was at Blue Rock Springs, where actually at Lake Herman Road, it was property of Solano County, Solano County Sheriff 
came and it was right outside of Benicia. When he went out to Lake Berryessa, he called the Napa Police Department, not knowing actually that Lake Berryessa is in the jurisdiction of the Napa County Sheriff. So th there's there's a lot of interesting information that that you can kind of look at and that that's very suggestive of of things like you know where this person might might live, where he might work, what his typical roots are. David, two weeks before we started shooting, said, listen, just for drill, you should probably learn how to type 60 words a minute. Yeah, he also said to me, just for a drill, I'm giving you a fake baby and diapers. I want you to learn how to, to change a baby with old 70s diapers with a pin. Hmm. Just for the record, never learned how to do it, never needed to. Press conference set four. Gotta give him something. One of the cool things about having David Fincher direct your movies, you get guys like Dermot Mulroney in small roles, you know. You know you he was him. such a great Captain Lee, though. You look like him? Oh, yeah. Another guy. My new book, All Men Have More Hair Than Me. <laughs> huh. The thing that really made me sad was when I realized he's wearing a fake gut. Yes. You know, I'm like, oh, you know, I'm, I'm, in, I'm in as good shape as Dermot Mulroney. And then he unstraps his stomach. I'm like, oh, crap. He signed his gut for me. <laughs> Did he really? Yeah, I have it. <laughs> this is this is a great scene here. It's it's jurisdictional yeah. fuck up yeah. from love, the get go. I, I love, love this scene. I love phone scenes. I love. I mean, you know, and and you know, it's not necessarily the most filmic thing, but I just love you know, guys. This is this is the job. You talk to people who omit, who lie, who mislead you for varying motives. A multi-jurisdictional multi homicide investigation was like unheard of. Well, really, I mean, really early on, too, we had there was somebody, you know, at, at, at the studio who goes, why don't you know? I mean, later on in the Arthur Lee Allen investigations, when it really came up, but they go, why didn't they just arrest the guy? And you kind of go S movies and television have so programmed people to think you can just snap and go that's the guy i feel it in my gut you meet the judge at the bar yeah you bring you bring the court documents there he signs the search warrant at the bar and then you go serve it the next morning yeah it took them 13 months yeah to get a search warrant for arthur lee allen's trailer this is 13 months after actually interrogating him at his place of work now if you're zodiac and you just had to sit down in front of three police officers who were asking you if you're Zodiac. This scene By 13 is, yeah, months, you're going to yeah. dump it. Yeah, and this scene is so brilliantly suspenseful and real and dense in human detail. And it's not cacophonous. There's not overlapping dialogue. It is, you know, he's not hitting you in the head with technique. It's back. It's forth. There's no split screen. There's no nothing. Trying to get us coordinated. Have you called Solano Sheriff's Office? Why did I call Solano? And you got Falcon's Elms in the background there. Pardon me? You get Falcon's Elms in the background there. I mean, just, the, the two patrolmen. Oh, yeah. Now, there's a lot of, uh, of question as to whether or not they actually stopped Zodiac and spoke to him. Um, Don Falk, who's still alive, who, who we spoke to, insists absolutely that um, they did not stop. They... They were driving on Jackson going west. They saw this man walking towards them. They were looking for a black guy, and they flashed the brights at this figure. They saw he was white. They had slowed down, and then they just kept going. Um, of course, Zodiac claimed that 
that he was stopped and he did talk to these two police officers. Toski insists that they did stop. Eric, Eric Zelms, um, who's the other patrolman, was actually killed the following year. And in the, in the line of duty? Yeah. And in the opening of Dirty Harry, they show the wall uh, in the Hall of Justice where it has all the names of the guys killed in the line of duty. And as they pan down, you see both Eric Zelms' name and Officer Richard Radatich's name, whose later, later Zodiac takes credit for killing. We need to get with the sketch artist. We have to put out a new composite right away. Five persons have been murdered in the San Francisco area, and in each case, the killer who... I shall wipe out a school bus some morning. It's San Francisco Police Department. <laughs> to see the stones in composition... Considered the water theory. This is a Gray Smith, you know, Gray Smithian, uh, Wiley Coyote super genius idea: the bodies of water. And and you know, Robert, when he came to us, you know, was sort of like, well, you know, about. I mean, it literally played out almost like this. And you know, Washington and Cherry was, I think, actually something Fincher said. Yeah. And we went, okay, that's going in. Robert loves puzzles. He loves the interconnectedness of everything, and then everything, you know, it, that sort of. Da Vinci code believability that people have. Robert has sometimes with this case and is always looking for connections. And a lot of times, if you're looking for patterns, you can find them, even if they're not. Whether they're, if, whether they're or there or not, at the same time, it takes a mind like that sometimes to see patterns that nobody else does. I ate so many carrots. Oh, you did. You did it all, man. This was a, I got to just say it right here. This was a gargantuan effort on your part. What are you talking about? Because it was probably the most exacting lead role in any of Fincher's films. Exacting? Yeah. It was very specific. You had to ride that razor's edge between being like, you know, the wide-eyed, oh boy, oh boy, because you're actually the one who the passion of this whole story and the reason he's telling this story rests. As we know, this was in David's time and he was in the Bay Area and... This was part of his, you know, this was the boogeyman of his childhood. So there was a lot of onus on, on portraying it right, and it was seen through your eyes. Tough stuff, man. Thank you. I gotta say, I think that was extraordinary also. <laughs> This was a sequence that was I wrote in the very, very first draft of the script and the Jim Dunbar sequence and then cut it and we went out to Fincher. We went out to – he was our first choice and it was sort of you have to go to David Fincher. It's sort of like you know required by law in Hollywood if you have a, a serial killer movie. So basically we sent the script to him and, and you know – waiting for him to pass so we could actually get down to the business of finding a director, you know, <laughs> and the fucker said, oh, I'd like to meet on this. And you go, oh, OK. Um, but one of the things he talked about was, you know, how the he wanted to focus more on, you know, how the, it's essentially it's a two act movie with the break being the, the sort of the black in between. And he wanted to focus more on on this this first sort of act about the investigation. And I remember saying, well, you know, I have this sequence about the whole Jim Dunbar show. And he went, oh, that's exactly what we – so we put it back in. The dramatic arc of this film is unlike any other crime film. 
ever there are no acts. It's an accumulation and accretion of detail that is all logically underpinned and makes perfect sense. You're situated in the film and the film is entirely coherent all the way through. I'll nitpick a couple of things further on, like the basement. <laughs> I'll rag the shit we'll out talk, of it. That's the we'll only talk. actual I, movie scene. I want to talk movie. to you. I do want to talk to you about the basement because I have feelings on that as well. Yeah. It's interesting. Negative feelings? We'll talk about it later because I do, you know, I, I, I do want There's to There's actually one, one of, the, one of the, the moments in the movie that was cut out of the movie I used to use to pitch the movie, which was the inside of the movie theater. Yes, which turned out to not be true. And it was one of those sort we of- took it out. Yeah. Um, as, as did we with the car chase at the beginning of the movie. That's right. There was a, there was a big- A mythological of, car chase to Blue Rock Springs. That, that Zodiac sort of herded them there. And um, that kind of made its way into lore, but which you, also made its it? way into Grace. No, no, no. We we got we got it out in the script stage after talking to people. This was a fiasco. One of the many blind alleys that the police doggedly pursued. Oh yeah, no. I thought you meant I thought you meant shooting it. I was like, oh, oh no. Sam. I still to this day don't know how a guy gets to make a phone call from a mental institution. Do they just? They can have phones at mental institutions. Yeah, they have pay phones. Oh, yeah, pay, I mean, but you know, then on the people, yeah. you know, looking at them and well, he's you know, he's <laughs> so, you know, I mean, kind of, you know, screaming Sam, about his head. Yeah. Sam's been on the phone a while in there. And, oh, he's talking of, to Melvin Belli. Leave him yeah. alone. Pockets of quarters. Yeah, it was Melvin Belli or F. Lee Bailey. Yes. How great is Brian Cox? Yeah, my my actually my. One of my favorite jokes in the entire movie is actually something we wrote at the last minute. It was I again one of those. We were, yeah, it was the the Star Trek joke. David up. wanted some some dialogue for them to kind of banter about between phone calls during commercials, and so I did some research on Melvin Belli and found out he'd been on Star Trek, and it was like, oh my god! And if you go back, by the way, and look at the still of him, it's hysterical. Gretchen Belli, can you imagine? Yeah, actually gave us a, a lot of material. Of Mel's. Yeah. When did, when did Mel kick the bucket? It late 80s? I think so. You know, I don't know exactly. I, I hate to speculate. Just the kind of lawyer you want. 600 bucks an hour and flamboyant and full of shit. <laughs> Those are the exact um, kinds of clothes he was wearing that day. Nice threads. His necktie is too skinny, though. Yeah. I mean, you can land a 737 on that thing. <laughs> <laughs> Did you attempt to call one other time when F. Lee Bailey was with us two or three weeks ago? Yes. And why did you want to talk to Mr. Bailey? Why do you want to talk to me, Sam? I don't want to be hurt. Why is he calling? I don't want to go to the gas chamber. You won't get hurt if you talk to me. You're not going to the gas chamber. Speaking of jokes, by the way, the one thing I the one thing I always wanted to figure out a way to get into the movie that I never could was the fact that the after this whole conversation, the American Chiropractors Association, I think, took out an ad um saying that Zodiac should turn himself in. Really? Yeah. Some some form of I'm, I'm getting the details wrong, but I I just thought that was amazing that that somebody at the Chiropractors Association went, you know what? That's our angle in. We can get some press out of this bad boy. <laughs> I'm going to kill them. Oh, oh. <laughs> I love that. That thing of your own obsession with it beginning to form and yet the kind of 
necessity to be appropriate. Robert Graysmith actually brought his children to the crime scenes. You know that I think that's a kind of movie version of Robert. You know, I think the, the real Robert didn't necessarily have as much um, consciousness of like turning off the television when something like that happened. You know, I, and I don't think it was out of anything, but you know, kind of innocence. But and here we go. I'm imagining that the helicopters are CGI'd, unless, of course, they didn't mind having them fly through. Yeah, they're CGI. That's a great stop by Tony Edwards. I just want, that's a great driving stop. But he said, watch him drive, watch him talk, watch him with evidence, watch his emotionality underneath the surface. He's not playing it. There's nothing sentimental. It's incredible how, how much – I just want to talk about Brian Hartnell a little bit more because he really has created a real life for himself and, and has a wonderful family. And, and you know, I'm sure over the years got a lot of calls from, you know, various shows and stuff like that. And, you know, we come on and talk about getting stabbed. And, and he was nice enough to meet with us I think only because – you know, he kind of went, the movie's going to be made whether I talk to them or not, so I should probably speak to them. And, um, yeah. you know, we uh, so sat down with us and, you know, very nice. But at a certain point during dinner, you kind of have to go, so how'd you get stabbed? You know, it, it, and and he he went from sort of talking to us, you know, that we'll talk one night to going out and doing press for the movie. I mean, and I th he felt it was newsworthy again. Yeah. And I think he I think hopefully I don't want to speak for him, but I, I hope it was a cathartic experience for him. I sat down with with Robert at the beginning of our, our rehearsal period. We had a rehearsal period for like two weeks, I guess. Uh, we'd all sit down and go through the script. And uh, during that time, David brought Graysmith out to L.A. to come meet with me. And we sat down in David's office for two and a half hours and over lunch and I brought like three different recording devices like I recorded his voice and I recorded him on video and um, everyone I had always asked what was David the other, a pupilometer what else did you I record did <laughs> you have electrodes on I had an ab abacus <laughs> anyway. and I did chisenbop as I watched his retinas <laughs> so I met, when I met with him I kept asking David I don't remember if you remember in the rehearsal I kept saying to David you know why does he do this? Why does he, why mm -hmm. is this become such a, I, I feel like, I mean, I am not an actor who is up for exposition or trying to make exposition work within a story, but I do feel like there need to be questions answered. And they never had a so solid answer for me except for just meet him and you'll understand, which fucking annoyed me. And then when I met him, I realized like I'd ask him a question. He would kind of answer it. But then he would ask me questions, and if I didn't answer the question the way he – not even just the way he wanted, but if I wouldn't, I kind of – you know, you don't always get to answer everyone's question. He would then 20, 15, 20 minutes later put that same question in a different context within the conversation, like a journalist, wow. like a detective, but even better in that it's just a guy wanting to know something. And I could see how that's how he got to where he got to with this. I also could tell, you know, you meet Robert. I think he's a wonderful man, but I mean, I don't think he would disagree that he's he's odd. Come back to that. I didn't know he was going to send another code. I just guessed. Just guessed. The first one seemed too easy. This can no longer be ignored. What is that you're drinking? It's an Aqua Velva. 
I wouldn't make fun of it if you tried it. Again, with jokes, this is the easiest joke to write in the world, and it, it's, it's a cut-to joke, and it works perfectly. Every yes, time. Quivella. Every time. Yeah, but the, the let me try that, you know, you yeah. wouldn't, you know, if you tried yeah. it, cut-to. Lots of drinks. Underneath it all, and I'm writing a 68 to 72 novel, now everybody was bombed out yeah. of their guard. We couldn't use the real name of this establishment because of of the cocaine sniff coming well you know it was actually it was very difficult to track down the the chain of the chain ownership of ownership on it yeah i think they would have been delighted to have the the real one used when fincher first came onto this movie the first thing he said was because there were pseudonyms in the script some of the you know especially arthur lee allen he said i'm not doing this movie if i can't use everyone's real name yep. and we went oh shit Double symbols, which they find here, here, and here, each with the same two symbols preceding them. So now they've got a repeating four-letter word ending with two symbols that they assume stand for L. And since I think the whole word is kill. And you got your K, you got your I, and you're on your way. Hammered is tough to play, man. You kind of nailed it. I think the thing, too, maybe for, for Bobby Gray is that it's been so tense. Of course, it gets worse and worse and worse and worse. But the fact that you've actually kind of been called into the skull and bones meeting and we're going to mud wrestle and you're kind of in on the thing i think there's this big release of energy and excitement and tension then i'm kind of like uh, uh, i'm trying to keep up with you you know this is the other thing about this this scene which was this was the only time i had an opportunity to explain anything and to be someone who was proactive in a way that wasn't sort of holding so much back you know and so i, I reveled in it and i think actually it turned out it turned out really great and it was easy for us because that's more of me. That's more of who I am. One of the few people who wouldn't actually give us their name was Toski's wife, um, who's a wonderful, wonderful woman who's very concerned about Dave and how he was portrayed. And, and I hope that... Uh, my bride. Yes, my bride. And I hope she feels good about how... I got a very him. nice note from Toski. Really? Yeah, last week thanking us for doing this and, and for making the movie and for our hard work and and that every cop that's called him has, has said how great his portrayal is and, and how it really shows, you know, how hard they all worked. Yeah, it's very respectful. Hey, that's some pad, man. Just when you thought you were making a couple of bucks, yeah. check that crib out. Yeah. Yeah, and this came from something Toski told us that that uh, he was that Belli was having a dinner party and invited them over to show off to his guests, you know. And uh, nice pad, man. again and take my ninth and possibly tenth victim. Melvin, he's reaching out to you. Absolutely, inspectors. He sent this letter directly to my residence. It is a cry for help intended as a private communicator. Which is why you contacted the Chronicle. The people have a right to know. Toddy? When did the letter arrive? In the middle of last week. I was away on safari. What did you gentlemen do for Christmas? You're looking at it. You must see Africa. Cradle of civilization. Fascinating people. Beautiful. Savage. Back to the killer who wrote to you. Yeah. That little joke never made <laughs> that that joke never made yeah. didn't make the theatrical cut. Yeah. And it killed me. What I what I like about Melvin Belli as portrayed here is that he is a dipshit who's desperate for everyone's approval in the moment. Not to despite the fact not he's to, got the world by the nuts. Yeah. Oh absolutely. Yeah. 
There's an, I don't think we go He's back to it, but there's a very odd chair that's kind of in the corner. It looks like you could actually hide inside of it. Do you know what kind of chair that is? I do, I do not. It's actually a genuine I, question. I do, I do not. I mean, it's a genuine answer. I do not. Do you know remember the chair? Yeah, we're getting desperate for commentary. No. <laughs> we're talking about the fucking chair. <laughs> Okay, who says this Ioni Sky? Ioni Sky, who is Donovan's daughter. Yeah, she's Donovan's yeah, I daughter. I mean, which is just one of those great, you know. Okay, my buddy Randy Rice, mm -hmm. he told me about this. I wasn't there for it. I didn't witness it. But he was he was sitting on a bus stop in front of Clyde Wallach's Music City at Sunset and Vine, the summer of 68, and a car pulled up. Donovan was in the back seat, handed Randy a basket of fruit and said, here, distribute this to my people. <laughs> I've hated him. I've hated Donovan ever since. Ever since. Yeah. 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 This scene was the other. This this and the the scene at the lake are the two scenes that you know just I think scare scare the hell out of me. Skin. And um, they're cautionary tales. And the whole you know and so. To try and construct the entire thing, you know, around the baby, and you know, first we don't know there's a baby, and then you know, we we slowly reveal there's a baby. Then he doesn't know there's a baby. Then he learns there's a baby. Then you know, trying to I do want to be flipped, Jamie, during during like Barry S. of the sequence. Mm -hmm. yeah, it's not what we were talking about, but yeah. it, there's a moral lesson there. You know what it is? Take your girlfriend to a motel. <laughs> yeah. You know what the moral is of Moby Dick? And that's not even Moby Dick. What is the what is the moral of Moby Dick? Don't fuck with the white whale. <laughs> <laughs> it's subtle, but it's in there. Yeah, yeah it is. Yeah, it's yeah. A, do yeah. not fuck with the white <laughs> whale. It's very simple. It's yeah. there. Mm -hmm. It's ever present. This was the thing also people go back and forth on is, you know, was was this Zodiac? I, I don't I don't think I don't think I don't think so. I don't think it was. And we did not get to speak with Kathleen Johns. She had passed by the time we were doing we were doing research for this, but we spoke to to, to George Bauer and uh, he didn't buy it. and Conway. No, he didn't buy it. He spoke he spoke to her. I mean, you know, it's he, this guy is now the most wanted man in the state. You know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, I think she legitimately believed it was him, and I think legitimately this happened to her. I mean, and, and we wouldn't have put it in if we didn't really think this happened to her. Um, but uh, I don't. I don't think it was Zodiac. Yeah. We're, we're into nineteen seventy now, aren't we? Yeah. yeah. May of seventy or something. Yeah. March. Uh, March of seventy. Okay. I believe so. I think it's March thirteenth. Man, I drove. Is this? Yeah, I drove five because I had a girlfriend in Sacramento for a while. It was bleak shit. Yeah. Ugh. And this is Zodiac four or three. This is mm. it's the it's the old Hitchcock move. It's the old Psycho Hitchcock move um, of you know getting different actors to play the same because you know to match the physical description. They never wanted Anthony Perkins to do the the shadows or the killings. Yeah. One of the things I love about movies is I don't know how to do it. I don't know how to do this. I can write a movie. I've done that. Yeah. But I don't know how to do what Fincher's doing here. I don't yeah. know where to. Uh, beats me. You shouldn't smoke. It's a bad habit. Zodiac's the only voice of anti-smoking in the entire movie. <laughs> I'm glad you quit, Jamie. I think, yes, I did. I smoked like a chimney. By the way, you know it's a great director when you've written the scene and you're freaked out watching it the first time. 
boys go around helping people in the night? When I'm done with them, they don't need much help. Before I kill you, I'm going to throw your baby out the window. I love David Shire's music. Yeah, we should talk about that a little bit. I mean, it's, it's just, it's, it, we originally talked about no, not, no having, score. not having any score, yeah. just having uh, songs from the period. And the nuance, the subtlety, the effectiveness, it's... It's really, uh, it, it's used yeah. so perfectly. It's also what I like about the idea of it, too, is, is you know, kind of like, you know, okay, we're, you know, maybe we do need a little bit of score, but it should be something like, you know, they did in All the President's Men. Let's go get the guy who did All the President's Men. Yeah. You and know, that's I, David I, I, Yeah. Yeah. You know, and I don't know when the last, what the last movie before this he scored is. I think. I don't know, actually. You know, you know the, the swell of strings in the climactic scene with Toski and Gary yeah. Smith breaks your heart. Yeah. As the scene breaks your heart. Well, there's, there's a theme, actually, for the investigators. There's a theme for Graysmith. There's a theme for Zodiac. This is also, you know, try to write a montage. You know, it's, it's that. Yeah. How can you do a montage in a way that we haven't seen a montage that much before? You know, and for me, it was just, I mean, you know, this is all, this is really Fincher. This is, you know, but like kept going, I kept going, well, why don't we try like this? This is the equivalent of a jump chapter in one of my big historical novels mm -hmm. where you've got to update the shit from the various viewpoints and get the person to the reader to the next bit of direct action. And this is very artful. But keeping it interesting, too, keeping it not being just a montage. We have know? to read the headlines yeah. and you're going to try to read the lowercase script as well. Yep. But also not going too far with it, not, you know, not blowing it out of the box where the rest of the movie, which is, is very, you know, very classical, is, you know, this doesn't jolt you from that. Now, this is, this is the height of Zodiac's activity. All of this writing, this flurry of letters of he was so busy writing, he probably wasn't committing any murders. Gave a rather interesting ride for a couple of hours one evening a few months back that ended. Watch Robert take the scene from my hands. <laughs> Eat it. Regurgitate it. In the form of a print. Um, Watch it right now. It's happening as we speak. Yeah. This as is where, you know that speak. thing where you, where that thing where you go, hey, I got an idea. And then like eight out of eight and a half times, it didn't work. Ugh. That's that's a bar trick that you I learned. You don't do that in a David Fincher film. This scene, man, Jake was in an unadulterated Ugh. liver channel rage. Horrible that rage, oh and it was God. that thing of, and I can relate to it. It's like people don't understand when you're on day seventy-seven of a three million day schedule, and you realize I'm out of steam, but we're not done, and your personal life and your own self-care has gone out the window. But look at the scene. You can't tell. Consummate fucking professional. <laughs> Not your hands. Also really good director. Look at the article from the scene. Um, this is a really important scene, actually, because this is this is really Downey, Avery, putting Zodiac back in the box a little bit. Graysmith has has these wide eyes and sort of turned Zodiac into doing a little hero it's the worship. Myth. Yeah, it's the, it's the mythologizing. The other thing that I think is really important 
to me is that, you know, Downey, we all have so much fun with Avery as this kind of drunken, loudish, funny guy, but he was a hell of a reporter. And he really was. And, and so it, uh, it's really important, I think, to, to, to get that he was able to put this together. You don't see him much do much reporting or detecting in the movie. We kind of use him as that sort of comedic relief. Well, we should also point out actually here the Zodiac Watch ad. This is before that connection was made by the police. And we found in the Solano County files, oddly in the Solano County files, there was a report that Paul Avery wrote on the Zodiac case. Um, it was, I think, 10 or 11 pages long. Mm -hmm. And in it, he referenced the potential source of the Zodiac symbol as coming from this brand of watch. He came up with that before the police did. Mm -hmm. And we put that in. I think we, we discovered that document while we were shooting, but before we shot that scene. Yeah. Reading homicide files is so much fun, especially if they're yeah. unsolved. bother you that people call you shorty? Does it bother you that people call you retard? Nobody calls me that. This, by the way, was the one line that Graysmith asked me to take out and I didn't. Um, Which is? The retard line. Yeah. And, oh, and wow. after the... Did after he, he actually ask you to take Yeah, it he did. He did, actually. And mm -hmm. and uh, after after he saw it, he went, okay, it's funny. You know? She's running for mayor, huh? Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> for governor. Yeah. She was the mayor of Vallejo. She was running yeah. for governor. She's yeah. going to unseat Ronald Reagan, huh? Mm -hmm. Good luck. Love the Nixon button. Well, who, she wearing a Nixon button? No, she's just one in the background. Yeah. Love that. yeah. A lot of brown in this movie. This is what the Chronicle looked like. It was walking Graysmith around there too was just, you know. Yeah. Because this was a 360 degree set. You know, you walk in any direction and, you know, it's, it's the, it's the Chronicle floor, you know. So you just, this is, this is a build though. This was a build. Oh, yeah. This is in Los Angeles. This was in downtown LA at uh, the Terminal Annex building, which, which was the main post office. And the weird thing was Mission Impossible 3 was one floor below us. Yep, that's right. Happy Halloween. Paul, you did call him a latent homosexual in at least one of your articles. Dave? I want a gun. A, a gun? By the way, best scene in the movie between the two of us right now, coming up. Thank you. Coming up. I wanted to do it even louder. In fact, this is actually, if you, want to, if you want to get a picture of what it's like with me and Robert in the room right now doing the commentary, this is exactly what it looks like. Yeah. This, is, this is basically what it looks like. I just want everybody to know that. Um, so thank God for that. Yeah. It's always fun watching this with an audience because about third of the audience sees the button on Downey, no, and then two thirds it. of them see it yeah. on on Gyllenhaal. No, so this it's joke this works delayed. Really well. Yeah. The reason, by the way, I keep talking about jokes, and I know it probably sounds weird, but I I feel like in movies like this, you know, in 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 good dramatic beefy movies, humor is actually really important. A lot of people don't realize that that you know you need to weave it through to really sort of you know love and believe in the characters and and so it's it's always been sort of really important to me to get that stuff in there not you know just to to show off or try and be funny but you know because there's a lot of humor in everyone's life every day I, and i sometimes you see these kind of very stilted you know dramas where everything is so fucking serious and it just bores me to tears. I don't think they work. And so I think the, the best dramas have a huge amount. You watch The Godfather. It's got a huge amount of humor in it. 
it does. And this, this, this come. This is a non sequitur. This thing here, you know, mm -hmm. Chloe Sevigny, the lovely Chloe Sevigny, yeah. and this blind date. It shows you that he's got a private life, and that he's a clunky, nervous guy, but he wants something. And look at her; she's utterly beguiling and lovely. And there's nothing false about this scene. And these people seem, you know, Sevigny and John all there seem desirous, nervous. Anxious for love, apprehensive. David focused really heavily on this scene yeah. when I mean we we worked on this scene over and over again. Well, yeah, because also the the you know and rightfully so that 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 he kept coming back to the the fact that like there's other stuff going on in these people's lives. Right. You know, it can't every scene can't be just about the Zodiac killer, and even if. We take thirty seconds in the scene to talk about stuff that doesn't have to get. So we'll get back. To, we get back to Zodiac right here, but we have to show the cessation of the marriage. So you have to have the genesis. Yeah, yeah you have to have the genesis, but you also have to have you know two people talking about oh we met through this woman and oh my kids and you know we we talk about you know Glynis, this woman we completely made up. You yeah, know? and it it turns it's going to turn to Zodiac in about forty five seconds. Yeah, I've never been here before. <laughs> Love this. You like this scene? Yeah, it's just really good, man. Your guys' meeting scene is fantastic. There are very few scenes where, like, I had opportunities like this, you know? A lot of it's so procedural, you know? So, like, you don't get to know the character as much through moving the story forward. It's, like, always a balance between character and, and, and moving that kind of, this, like, bohemoth, like, forward. So when you have these opportunities to take a breath and, like, show a character a little bit, like, again, I reveled in that. They were, like... The scene with you in the bar when we're sitting down and we're drunk, that scene, this scene, I really had an opportunity to, to go, oh, I, I know where I am. I, I know who I am. I, I'm not just moving a big story forward, you know? She gives good parka. <laughs> Here's a bit of trivia for you. My favorite line. I don't think, I don't, I don't think I've ever heard that. I give good parka. <laughs> I don't think that phrase has ever been used. Nor will it be again. No, it will be again now. Now, you're going to, yeah. You know what's interesting about this is, you know, he's a good looking young guy and mm -hmm. she's a great looking woman, but they're geeks. Absolutely. They're total mm -hmm. geeks. You know, and they're both fit. But you don't think they're fit because they're geeks. They're geeks. Yeah. Strangely, yeah. I'm comfortable writing those characters. This scene should have wound up with me running into Fred Durst. But for some reason or other, David and he who are friends, he called them in to shoot that several lines about 36 times only to cut it. It was Fincher's idea that nobody in this movie knows how far away anything is. Like the distance. That he drove between. to Riverside and had yeah. no, you know. From I don't think he Sacramento that far. to San Francisco. Yeah. This is sweet. She just knows this dipshit, and she's over at his pad yeah. taking a snooze. She trusts him. You know why? He has the higher truth of Zodiac. It's that quality, that innocence, that earnestness, and and Boy Scout attitude. That that's why cops trusted him and just yeah. you know turned over a lot of the stuff to him. They they knew that he didn't have an ulterior motive. 
You know, when we talked to him, he would he would sort of say, I just had to talk my way in. I didn't have millions of dollars in a movie. Because, you know, I mean, it's amazing when you work in Hollywood what people will share with you. It's, you know, hey, we're making a movie. Oh, OK, come take a look at our files and our evidence. And But a guy off the street, a cartoonist going, I'm working on a book. Um, will you let me see your police files in an active case? You know, no way, Jose. But somehow he got in there. I remember shooting this with this actor who's playing the guy who I'm giving the new information to. <laughs> Look at him. <laughs> He's just dead. He's just like... drunk. I was just playing it. I'm <laughs> drunk and don't move that microphone because if you do, I'll follow it to the ground. <laughs> I think it's interesting how the politics of this case persist even to this day. Yeah. You're talking about internecine police politics? Well, yeah, and I'm talking about, about the fact that, you know, San Francisco is so closed up about this whole thing. They don't want to talk about it. They don't want to comment on it. They don't want to hear from people. They're not interested in whether this thing ever gets solved. They're just as happy to leave it alone and let it go. And San Francisco's full of shit. It's a parochial, you know, poker up its ass. You know, the fashion, the, the it mere condescends fact, to the great L.A. The mere fact that they had been sitting on untested forensic evidence for God knows how long. But you know what? I, I want to – I think that there's a – you know, the – yeah, there's untested forensic evidence, but it, there is also the argument of are we going to take lab time away from an open murder that occurred last Tuesday in order to test you know what? a dead case? I, I, I think that there's material, a valid point there. Though. That material was turned over to Vallejo mm -hmm. and tested yeah. almost overnight. Look back to Dave Toski, SFPD. Oh, how you doing? Great. Thanks for having us down today. Look at how beautiful that is right there. That's just, that's interagency police work in a nutshell. There with the light coming in. Oh. Is that the real victim? Yep. yep. God bless her. That's the real file. Yeah. What is he, a Scottish or Irish actor, Donald Logue? Yeah. Going through this, this is another one that I don't necessarily think was Zodiac, but a lot of, you know... A lot of people do, you know, and you look at there are there are similarities there. I mean, the double, you know, double postage. I finally read the two books, Zodiac and Zodiac Unmasked, mm -hmm. recently, and he's really reaching. Going back to 1963, there in yeah. Gaviota, yeah. he's he's reaching, mm -hmm. and you got always have you always have a lot of shooting homicides, a lot of mountain gang homicides, and a lot of ligature strangulations. I mean, I honestly think he just killed. You know, I think, yeah. yeah. Lake Herman Road, Blue Rock Springs, Lake Berryessa. Yeah, in San Francisco. San Francisco. Yeah, that's it. Over now. Now, it's, uh, you know, some people believe Zodiac was responsible for Riverside. Some people believe he was not responsible for the killing, but he did write the letters and took credit for it. Others believe he didn't do either and that uh, that the newspaper uh, did an incredible disservice to the investigation by putting on the cover that um, that there was a connection. But... You can't really blame the newspaper because the fact of the matter is Sherwood Morrill, who was the document examiner for the state at the time, did in fact conclude formally that Zodiac was responsible. The person who prepared the Zodiac letters also prepared the Riverside writings. So it's, you know, it's hard to say really if any one entity or person was really responsible. I mean, the newspaper was reporting news, yeah. but the net effect was that everybody in Southern California was flooding San Francisco Police Department now with all kinds of false leads. Absolutely. If this is Zodiac, then why give anything to Avery? 
I'm trying to cooperate. Oh, that's how you cooperate? By giving information to reporters? Look, I don't know about the handwriting, but Sherwood says it's a match, right? So let's just say that your guy did Sherry Joe. He types the confession, Zodiac reads it in the paper, and he writes a letter taking credit for it. Now that's something he's done before. Look, now you have everything we have. But in my opinion, you guys came south for nothing. This confrontation, though, I think is, is really um, illustrative. This, you know... This is, this, is con- this is police versus and, media. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. They both have a role to play and they're stepping on each other's toes in a serious way. Yeah. And they're both right and they're both wrong. Yeah. You should have called me. And it's conciliatory at the end. You should have called me, Paul. Oh, oh, really? Well, now I can't do mine. We're already screwed up the amount of tips we got on this thing. And, and you've just freaked out the entire state. I've got Napoli, Vallejo, and DOJ looking at me sideways. I remember that this scene was endless, but I'm so glad that that landed in frame. <laughs> <laughs> we actually fixed this in ADR in post. You did? Yeah, we were both a little bit too intense. I'm out here beating the bushes, trying to draw them out. We're in this together. Well, we're not in anything together, Paul, because I'm not interested in upping my circulation. Oh, boy. You wrote me. You threatened my life. Hey, bullet. Been a year and a half. You're going to catch this fucking guy or not? Go fuck yourself. Happily. You should have called me, Paul. Here, this is my moment. You don't mind, do you? Don't run me over, fuck nuts. Great music cue. Oh, we reshot this three times. <laughs> oh, man. Oh, God, me cutting a piece of paper. This is in reshoots. This was ten years after we shot the film. Unfortunately, yes. Here comes every lunatic in California. There is this kind of you know, sort of, you know, media law enforcement complex that has always gone on and goes on to this day. I mean, you know, even even with current events and stuff like that, is there is this idea of, you know, the media and the police or the government are all in it together. And Graysmith is the one guy who kind of doesn't have it. It's that it's that, you know, what are you going to get out of this, you know, aspect. Media and that's why as, I think thematically he works. The yeah. media as a as a tool in this case, the tool of a serial killer. Today, you know, the media has been much more sophisticatedly used as a tool of the government. Well, yeah, but I mean, I just, it's always, it's, it's, it's always the way it's been, you know? And, and that's not, by the way, it's not like, oh, that's a terrible thing necessarily. No. By the way, it's Travis, my brother, is the, the, I try and work his name in, into every into every movie, and scenes kept getting cut, so I kept trying to get his name in somewhere else. And I think Fincher finally t- turned to Brad one day and went, "Who the fuck is Travis?" <laughs> and, Travis and why Bickle. does why does because like because he keeps showing his the name keeps showing up in the new pages, and like you know, Jamie's tried to work him in everywhere. We sat down with Don Chaney and Sandy Panzarella. Um, was actually pretty early on yeah. with the research process, and they hadn't seen each other in um, since the seventies. Since this, probably since the seventies, yeah. And it was one of those things too. It was Brad and David, and, and um, we spent two days with them. Yep. And um, you know, at the end of it, you kind of have to go: Do we believe these guys? Do we not believe these guys? I mean, are they looking for attention? Are they not? And there's just something about. There was something about, I think, being in the room with them, and we all kind of came out and went, I think they're telling the truth. I don't think they're making this up. It is a different experience to sit down with someone, look them in the eye, and hear them tell the story as opposed to reading it, um, reading the account. You do get a much 
stronger instinct as to whether they're full of shit. And it's the same thing when we sat down with George Bauert and he told us about when he met Kathleen Johns and he said meeting her, I didn't believe it was Zodiac. Yep. You know, it wasn't until I sat down with her that I went, nope, she's wrong. The other thing, we just saw a quick shot of Bill Armstrong's notes, handwritten notes, which were invaluable yeah. to us throughout this. He documented everything. And so being able to go off those those notebook pages. Yeah, actually, you can look the 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 Arthur Lee Allen investigation in the movie is lockstep with 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 those those reports. Some of them were formal reports. It's interesting, actually, this was also pointed out to us that police officers, um, any any actual reports that they made became part of the, the record that would have to be turned over to the defense. Yeah. But their notes are right. not. Right. Are not. What they what they do now. They're not work product. Yeah. yeah, I know this from my mother's case is you have to put your little pocket notebooks into the master file now on an unsolved case. Really? Because that's what Bill Stone and I were doing. We were going around the garages of the old dead detectives talking to their widows to see if they'd left their pocket notebooks. Hmm. It's all written down. And you know what? Arthur Lee Allen's name is in the Vallejo case file, the Berryessa case file. Yep. You know? Kenneth Bianchi's name, you know, was in the LAPD file. The three, they didn't get him until he murdered the women up in Bellingham, Washington. Names are in the file. The guy that they got for Green River, you know, Gary Ridgway, names in the file. Yeah, but how many other names? I mean, you know. BTK. Oh, yeah. yeah. Pardon me? BTK. BTK. Names in the file, yeah. right? Yeah. No, we're, about to, we're about to go down the handwriting ambidextrous rabbit hole. And um, the one thing I've learned about handwriting analysis since doing this movie is that it's it's not an exact science no it certainly isn't it, it really is a fascinating discipline yeah. document examination and people do that for a living yeah and how'd you like to spend your life doing that <laughs> we hired a forensic linguistics expert who's different from a traditional document examiner because he looks at language the use of language and Word he, choice and, yeah. he gave us an example. He said there was a case that he worked on in which there was a suicide note that was left and the document examiner went in and linked the handwriting to the person who committed suicide. But there was a suspect that they were able to prove was responsible for forcing her at gunpoint to write the note because it was her writing, but it was his, his words. Why do you guys want to do this? Well, Bill talked to the informant. Who leads we follow? It's okay by me. Okay. John this scene Carol freaks me out. Lynch. John Carroll Lynch has played my father in two other movies. Really? I was in a movie called The Good Girl with him. He actually didn't play my father. He played a manager of a store. It's hilarious in that movie. Then he played my father in Bubble Boy. Ah. Yeah. So you can imagine for me how disturbing this scene is. And when Mrs. Downey and I met on a film called Gothica... Mm. He played a cop who wound up being the killer. He also plays the husband in Fargo, which is he's amazing. This is um, an extraordinary part for him, and, and such an amazing performance. He, yeah. he carries all the weight of everything on him, and he does it effortlessly. They had the. Did you ever see the actual videotapes of of Arthur Lee Allen being interviewed? The, no. The, 
They have uh, police videotapes of him being interviewed, and the things that he says, uh, his like switching between kind of extreme confidence and at the same time like this sort of bafflement that someone would call him, like would say this about him, and then his odd pent up anger. But it's more than that. See how he set up. See how they set up the boot right there. I mean, look at how relaxed. That's what's so weird about him is how relaxed he is, and it's just you know, poor cops. Accusing me of being a serial killer. Also, that day when I came home, my neighbor saw me. This scene was not in the original script. I never wanted to originally to show him. I didn't want you to see. You always him. pulled away from it. My con- yeah, because my concern initially was you're going to see this guy and, and go and immediately oh, say fuck he's the guy because structurally we move off him, yeah. and yeah. I wanted the audience to actually buy that we move off him, and then so when we come back to him, they go okay. It was him. But I was really, really worried about that. You, you didn't have time to do interviews with multiple suspects. Absolutely. You didn't have that time. So it's one of those things where, and I think, you know, audiences are conditioned these days. They've seen enough films to go, okay, why are they showing this? Yes, They're they showing are. me this for a reason. Therefore, I'm thinking if we show them this scene, they'll go, oh, that's the fucking guy. Yeah. Um, but David wanted I'm, to embrace that. He did. And he wanted to go the other way. And he was he was Absolutely completely right. right. And once once we made that turn and and going through the scene, you know, the challenge then became how do you how do you then tell the audience what you convinced them of was actually wrong? And then how do you tell them, no, we lied to you. It was right. And the details of the scene, too, come straight out of. You know, it's interesting. B- Bill Armstrong told us he was 100 percent convinced that. When they walked into that trailer, they were going to find hard evidence. Absolutely. So was Tosky. And when he walked out, he had to just put it aside and say, he can't be the guy. Um, You've got to move on. Because it's also, it's the great, the great filmic lie is the cop who gets so invested in this case and it's going to destroy me. And, and, you know, I think it did eat these guys up, obviously, this this one especially. But, yeah. you know, you have to be – I mean, it's but it's bullshit. I mean, it's, you know, it's the it's the, the idea – it's the same idea of like you do you want the surgeon who's, you know, really invested in making sure you make it or do you want the guy who's just a cutter and is really good at it and is not even going to think of you as, you know. It's, it's, it's that sort of idea. So for these guys to be that invested in real life and Arthur Leon being the Zodiac Killer is a huge thing. It's institutionalized actually, I think, for a reason – Within the the uh, actual nature of police work and and what a detective's job is, which is collect evidence, find something, a case that can be brought to a DA so that a grand jury yeah. can be convened, yeah. and uh, and somebody and a DA can win a conviction in court, and that's what it was about. It's not necessarily I have a gut feeling about this person, which is also a big part of police. It work. is, it is, but it's not it's not that's not the end all be all. It's not separated. Sherlock Holmes. It's not, you know. You can look across Dave Tosky told us he looked across the room, looked at this guy in the eyes, and he just felt he was in the presence of evil. And he felt in his gut that he was the guy. But for Bill Armstrong also, who who really he's he was all about, he said, look, the evidence just wasn't there. Mm-hmm. We walked into that trailer and we walked out without something that we could bring to a grand jury. Yeah. We tried, but the evidence wasn't there. It's about your emotional investment in it. Tosky's emotional investment may have superseded Armstrong's. He was able to, he, Armstrong, was able to compartmentalize it better. And with Tosky, it just kicked around in there. And then, of course, he got the letter. Yeah. From Arthur Lee Allen, yeah. you know, on the point of his parole. Yeah. 
but filmically too, the, but the trick is how do you explain to an audience that is used to seeing the detectives emotionally invested? Okay, that's not really true, but in this case, it is. You know, it's it is to an ambiguous point, and what this movie asks you to do is engage interactively and think, and follow nuance, gesture, inflection, and investigation that does not lead to the next thing directly. It's why people who love this movie go back again. And again and again, is they want to get intellectually engaged. And here's the big elephant in the room that we haven't even talked about yet. You know they don't get them, you know. And so it's it's that. How, it was the first question I had that when I when I you know took it into Brad and, and pitched it to to Mike Metavoy. It's well they don't catch him in the end. So how's the movie end? You know how do you, you know? And I think there's that aspect of you know how do you go through. How do you get an audience to walk through the investigation with you knowing that there's going to be that rug pulled out from under you at the end that they do not arrest him? You and by the way, some people get don't. That closure. I mean, some people come to the movie not knowing. If the detail, yeah, well, fuck them. I mean, yeah. <laughs> if if the details moment to moment, if the themes, if the emotion, which is largely suppressed emotion in this case, grab you, you'll go on the run. Yeah. yeah. I hope. You're in the moment. You are definitely – in the moment. I also want to point out that that interrogation scene was directly transcribed from the police reports from Bill Armstrong's account and from Jack Mullinax's account of exactly what was said. One of the, the really interesting things that we got a hold of uh, was a tape of Arthur Lee Allen being interrogated later on in life less than a year before less he than died. a year before he died but yeah, so we actually yeah, yeah so we had actual video footage of this guy with a police officer and 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 showed it to the actor i believe right yeah john yeah, carol yeah. lynch uh, studied it. it yeah in his trailer before uh before that scene man you want the old guys back you know hit him in the head with a phone book until i give it up now this, yeah. is, now, this is a scene that came out of the theatrical cut, and, and I always really, really liked it, but it was always sort of a check back in with our other character scene. It was kind of that, you know, we've been away from Robert and, and, uh, and Paul Avery for a while now. Yeah, I don't remember this. It's because um, I've never seen it before. Yeah. It's quite good. I think it was the right decision, though, to to stick with the investigative thread until yeah. until the uh, the warrant was served and nothing was found of mm. strong enough value. The left hand. I mean, we know he's ambidextrous. In thirty eight years, I've never seen anyone that ambidextrous. Both hands would have commonalities. I'm sorry, it's not going to work. I'm Satoshi. Dave, Jack Mullinix. Yeah. Now, in context, Arthur Lee Allen, if he is the Zodiac, knows that the police are right on to him. He's been confronted at his, his work, and now the police will spend the next year and month until they actually get a search warrant. So... If he does have something, he's gonna it, dump it. What's he gonna do with it? Dump it. Hang it on his wall. Well, that's the other thing is that the um, Stein's bloody shirt never, uh, you know, came out. When we were trying to cut the movie down for time, I remember 
somebody called me. It wasn't Brad, but somebody was like, you know, what can we take out? What can we take out for time? And uh, I said, well, what about the Transamerica shot, knowing how much it costs? And they're like, you're an idiot. <laughs> how much did the Transamerica cost? I, I don't I don't know for sure personally, G's? but it, oh, more than that. I That's think. 100 G's. Huh? That's a lot more than that, I think. Yeah, you get a nice car for yeah. 100. You got to see my car. Yeah. The oh, other thing I said they could take out, they actually, that was the other thing I said they could take out plot wise and it wouldn't affect the movie was the basement. And they screamed at me. <laughs> God bless you, Jamie. Yeah. The, best, <laughs> the best testing scene. I know, dipshits. Creating information clearinghouse to promote an exchange and free flow of ideas. And that you run it. But who's better than me? The mocked man. <laughs> that was totally Fincher. I swear to God, I didn't want to do it. He made me. Yeah, he right. Sa he said, yeah, look away right. like Barrymore and go look up and go, the mocked man. <laughs> if at any time you feel my excellent work is no longer in step with this trashy provincial rag. Here's a touch I didn't notice till like the sixth time I saw the movie, he leaves his hat. Yeah. <laughs> it's the one, I mean, it's like, it's just great. I always leave my hat. I had nothing to, you, you know, do always I had leave nothing to do with that, but it's like, it, he he's basically telling his editor to fuck off. He may never come back, but he's forgotten his hat. Paul? Yep. What was that? Uh, an editorial tete -tete. You want to grab a drink? It's 10 in the morning. Late breakfast, early lunch. Oh. Are you okay? No. Shorty, by the way, was a real person, yeah. real character yeah. at the Chronicle. It was, again, one of those sort of great writer gifts from the gods and Robert goes oh well there was this guy who ran the coffee cart and and he had a sign saying delicious as hell sandwiches and he was a little person and he was a little person and we called him shorty <laughs> and you kind of go really really <laughs> so you know it's that yeah. and it's also like the animal crackers you know it's that truth is stranger than fiction yeah that's you know Tosky Bill Armstrong's told us, birthday yeah October yeah. 11th yeah but Tosky said I subsisted upon Sanka and uh, animal crackers the entire time we went well that's Sanka's fucked up there's no caffeine that's well I mean yeah. I know you know now yeah. he now he realizes there's another good chair <laughs> what is look, you wrong with you look at it no that looks like a comfy chair. The I, other one in Melvin Belli's office it looked like some contraption from the Middle Ages. I'm wondering if you're uncomfortable in your chair right now because <laughs> you seem to have a sort you know of what? There's nothing preoccupation. Like a good chair. I sure would shut you down. What if I can get a second opinion? Now, there was a document that we found in uh, among uh, Armstrong's notes. Um, it was an interview with... with uh, Arthur Lee Allen's sister-in-law, which stated that, um, it, and it was, it was shortly, we make reference to it later, but it was something like two and a half days after the date that they first interrogated Allen. Um, she said, without knowing that, without making yeah. that connection, uh, that he moved his trailer yeah. for school early and cleaned it out. Up to Santa Rosa, yeah. Which was unusual. This whole stretch of the movie is the type of thing where I think um, executives, a lot of executives get real nervous when they see people talking all the way through it, you know. For me, this is the most exciting stretch a little bit because it's... Well, the movie is, is really all people talking. Yeah. No, thank you. Suspect is Arthur Lee Allen, lives in Sunset Trailer Court in Santa Rosa, California. 
physical description. This is another scene that came out. I'm yeah, sure. I saw it at, yeah. at Paramount. Yeah. yeah, and and um, was was a really favorite scene of mine. I understand why it came out from time, but it it is really this and the end of the film are the real summation of the case against Arthur Lee Allen. This is this is the penultimate moment of they're they're about to get what they've been working all this time on getting the search warrant they're on they're making their case against their suspect yeah for me what is what was really important about the scene i'm really glad it's 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 on the dvd is that what also what you have to go through to get a search warrant you have to walk the DA down this this path of this is this is why we think it's him, you know this is where we've been, this is where we're going, this is what we hope to find, this is the connections we made. I mean, and and you know, if nothing else, it shows not only what a sort of a strong circumstantial case they had against Arthur Lee Allen, but how much fucking work they did and how much work goes into this job in general. Suspect worked for elementary schools and was fired for molestation in March, April '68. Could give him motive. At the very least, it's home turf. He'd have knowledge of bus routes. Yeah, but they they have to convince. Now, the DA, in this case, is in Santa Rosa. Yeah. They were turned down for the warrant in Vallejo. Mm -hmm. Now that the trailer has moved, they can make the case for Santa Rosa with the Santa Rosa DA. Sonoma County, I should say. The other thing I think is, I just dig about this scene, or the idea of this scene, is is that the most the most important person in the scene isn't in the room. Yeah, and we never, you know, it's not, you know, you know, Elroy yeah. calls it the yeah. Charlie's Angel scene a little bit, and it does have that sort of voice box quality to it. But, but you know, they have to convince this this guy. And the raft of, you know, information, this might actually be a good time to talk about the fact that the script, you know, ended up, the shooting script was 200 pages, um, which freaked out a lot of people. And I remember before shooting Fincher at one point going, well, I'm just going to have to have them talk faster. <laughs> and I laughed. But, you know, but if you lay this next to another movie, they're talking incredibly fast throughout the entire, but it's, you know, it's that old, you know, if everybody talks fast, you won't notice it. Well, you're living in a heightened reality and you're living in a dream state and you're living in a special world that coheres around one event. Mm -hmm. And so everybody's hopped up on the same thing. Yeah. yeah. Mr. Allen, this is the Santa Rosa Police Department. We have a warrant to search your residence. And then of course you have to bring Santa Rosa with you. You have yep. to, yeah. There was a uh, a really comprehensive list of everything that was found in um, Alan's trailer, and also everything that you're looking for, because you have to list that on the warrant. So you know, if, yeah, if right. you stumble upon something that's not on your list, tough cookie, buddy. Any other director would have turned this into a you know a perv fest, mm -hmm. you know, right here with, with yeah. big close ups of porno books yeah. and the rats and guns and pus and you know well okay. well there's some close-ups anyway. yeah <laughs> <laughs> you spoke a little too soon yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, you know. it was a brief shot of porno you books. know what actually is the creepiest shot in this whole scene for me is the toilet and i don't know why it just looks like the most rancid commode you've ever seen yeah well you're you're looking at this this yeah. twisted fucker's soul look at that oh kind of looks like my old apartment <laughs> there it is yeah Jesus. What? Squirrels. Which actually were in the freezer. Yeah, you can't make that up. Mm. Yeah. It was described by Bill Armstrong as the biggest tub of Vaseline he had ever, ever seen. seen. 
under Arthur Leon's bed with the uh, the, the wooden dildo. This is also a large. This is a lot of firearms for a small trailer. I think. I think this is a little overprepared. So. Now, they actually did find the same size gloves, shoes, and gloves. Yeah, as were discovered um, in the cab. We know that the the gloves in the cab were were used by Zodiac because – oh, Let me just point this out yep. really quick because it's not discussed in dialogue. He's driving a Carmen Ghia, which is the right. exact same car His that Brian Hartnell Hart had at Lake Berryessa. Now, Arthur Lee Allen was a big car guy, had a bunch yeah. of different, you know, sort of rent and, you know, not rent but stuff that he was working on. He was always working on and a And there's car. one of Brian Hartnell's sons. Yes, there is. Yeah, yeah, and sure. and I'm going to be in the movie incredibly out of focus behind Dermot Moroni's head in about two, three seconds. There I am in the uniform. Yes. You're I, such a self-promoter. I, I am such a self-promoter. No no it's like the most dramatic like, moment in the movie. And I'm like, there's me. Looked like one of the village people, actually. Yeah. And that's uh, Brian Benjamin. Hartnell's other son. Yeah. Benjamin. Benjamin, John, and myself in the background there. And then you're going to see Brian himself in, in a couple seconds. Hey. He's gonna come around. He's gonna be in cuffs. He's not in cuffs. Yeah, he's being he's being led. No. Yeah, he's in Brian Hartnell right there in the suit. Yeah, and his wife. I thought he was. Oh, was that no. his wife? Yeah. No, he, he wasn't, wasn't cuffed. No. I stand corrected. Well, I just want all this to be over. It's because you thought it was him, and I did too. You know what? Take some time off. Spend some time with your wife and the kids. Go to Candlestick. I love how he croaks the word hug. City of San Francisco, I will enjoy killing one person every day until you pay me $100,000. If you agree, say so tomorrow morning in personal column San Francisco Chronicle, and I will set up meeting. If I do not hear from you, it will be my next pleasure to kill a Catholic priest or a scorpion. This screening really did happen too. You know, I, I think there's something really interesting. It was really odd actually sitting in San Francisco in a screen at a special police screening with of Robert Smith and Dave Tosky watching a scene, scene in the movie. Of a special police screening of Dirty Harry. Killer gets shot in the chest. That, that's how the that's how it ends. Do I know you? I'm uh, Robert Graysmith. This was really cool for me structurally to do a movie where the two leads don't meet yeah. until this moment. What are we an hour and twenty five minutes in? An hour and a half? I yeah. I mean we're 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 more than halfway. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and they did my very first draft of this. They met a lot earlier, and then. Yeah. The idea of, of really sort of compartmentalizing them, you know, also they did not meet until this point. But, you know, th this this moment used to take place earlier running time wise in my first. Well, they're, they're about to they're about to actually serve a, a much needed role in one another's lives because they're both about to lose their partners. Mm -hmm. 
Graysmith is about to lose Avery, and Toski is about to lose Armstrong, and, and they're, they're, they're like two ships passing in the night in that moment, and they, they find one another and serve that, that role. Yeah, this, this backs up something that movie development people don't know very well. You could tell people only once and they'll retain it. Mm -hmm. Now yeah. we know. Yeah. They've met. Yeah. That's it. That's all you yeah. need. This whole sequence is, you know, I, I, I just love the idea of a, of a music sort of sequence, music passing as time passage over black. And I, th I, I cannot imagine what it must have been like to kind of pitch this idea to the studio and go, you know, we're going to use all these songs, which is going to cost hundreds of thousands of dollars. Well, what will we be seeing? Oh, well, there'll be no visuals. We're just going to have two minutes of black. I remember David was really excited. About oh this, yeah, though. this was this was this was like the first time we met him. The screen was, is just going to go black, and you go, and we're going to hear this music, and then we'll fade back up, and they still haven't caught the guy, and life has moved on. And yeah. Adam Goldberg is in our lives now. Yes, he is. That's the another guy. All men and more. Look, Jesus, what I had here. Talking about Fincher just a little more, the, my favorite Fincher quote of all time was when the first time we sat down with him and Graysmith and, you know, we talked for hours and hours and then we took a break and Graysmith kind of went over to him and, and asked about what's it like to direct a film and David said something, I'm not going to do it justice, but David said something, it's sort of like trying to paint a painting, but you're, you're 300 yards back and 85 people are holding the brush and you're on a walkie-talkie going, no, a little more blue over there. No, more blue. No, more blue. We talked a lot about the structure of, of this um, this section of the movie. Yeah, this moved this moved around, I think, in post more than anything else. Yeah, and I, th I think it worked. I think yeah. we, we found the best way to to make it work and I think... I think putting the the Armstrong quitting scene after that that sort of wide city shot and right after we reintroduce Graysmith, we're in this dance right now where Zodiac is still burning back well, in the minds of of these guys. Not it's not on the not forefront, really, but, but it's yeah. it's still something that you know they haven't been able to put away. And um, and you kind of want to build to the, as you said, sort of losing the partners, but you sort of wanted to, I mean, I wanted to, as you're going through the movie, get to a point where you go, when are these guys going to get together? You know? Yeah. And, and so you see them meet at the, at the movie theater and then you, but then you do the time jump and then you kind of have to juggle where they are. And you, you just at this point, I think you want them to start talking to each other about the case. See, I love you moment. And the wife's waiting for him. So yeah. he won't chicken yeah. out. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. He, you know, he's not going to chicken out. Yep. Yeah. Well, yeah. And it's the, have you told him yet? Knew. Have you told yeah, him yet? Exactly. Have you told him yet? Yeah. I'll tell him tonight, I swear. Tell me about this sequence and this kind of like quiet after and when you start reviewing things and, and decide to pick it up again, what all that was like. i got to tell you, I'm pretty much just happy I'm sitting on a couch. <laughs> I love this stuff with him, the kid, and she becomes understanding and then changes. I love that moment where you just kind of lean your head back and look around. There's a lot more of that stuff that was not in the final cut. To me, again, I always had questions about why he jumped back in, you know? And I, I think answering those questions would have unearthed a lot of answers that I think this this movie was not – it wasn't about that, you know? And I realized that throughout the process. 
Robert, for years and years and years, lived in a very small apartment after this and, and um, you know, kept amassing Zodiac stuff. And we would call him up and, and say, hey, can you pull this for us or pull that for us? And he had – It's know, right there on the stove. Yeah, that was the scariest moment. He goes, oh, no, no, no I have it. It's, it's in the it's boxes in I pile. have on the stove. I'm like, Robert, take them off the stove. What do you – Hang on. I'm just making tea. Yeah. And then he's – and he's, oh, the, I think the toxic mold in here is really getting bad. I really need to – touch. <laughs> They call it toxic mold for a reason. This was my f favorite scene in the script. And I know it sounds stupid to talk about stuff that you wrote, but this was the scene I always liked. It's that kind of, you know, the, it's the passing of the torch scene. And I thought they did such a great job with it. Robert told us he, he was sure that Avery was, was going to be the one to write the book about Zodiac. I mean, it just made sense. Yeah. Robert Graysmith, yeah. How old is Danny? 46, 47? No, younger. Younger. Yeah. Whoa. And John Hall's what? 28, 29? Younger. Wow. I think he's 25, 26 now. Hmm. Pong was Fincher. Yes. Pardon me? Pong was Pong. Fincher. Putting Pong yeah. in the background of this was all Fincher. It was great. What's your... I've been thinking. Yeah. Somebody should write a book. Somebody should write a fucking book, that's for sure. About what? About Zodiac. It's not me. I've been thinking that if you put all the information together, maybe you could jog something loose. And then I was thinking that nobody knows the case better than you. Yeah. That's and true. you know all the players and you, you have all the files. Lost them. You lost them? Or, or I tossed them. I don't know. I moved onto a boat. I always felt in some way that this, this scene was sort of a sister scene to the archives. Yeah. You know, where it's once again Avery taking Robert in his wide-eyed enthusiasm of, of this really important thing and, and just putting it back in the bottle and saying, you know, are you kidding me? Yeah. At the same time, you know, it's great that Robert Graysmith did all this, you know. There is an aspect of it where you go – what is wrong with you? Go back to your wife, dude. What are you thinking? Well, you know what you got when you gotta know, yeah. you gotta know. Yeah. And in the end, they probably know. And there's that haunting shot of Toski walking away from mm -hmm. the diner, yeah. hunched with the overcoat, billowing as he's yeah. crossing the street there. I'm just saying and when the guy lives on the houseboat like this, is yeah. the voice of reason. Yeah. 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 <laughs> it's, yeah. You know. I'm sorry I bothered you. Robert Graysmith really did steal stuff out of Paul Avery's trash. He went through his trash at the Chronicle. I mean, that is the level of obsession. The other thing I want to sort of point out here is that that he he did drive an orange rabbit, which is possibly the worst car to try and shadow someone in. <laughs> um, a bright orange rabbit, and he would follow around different suspects, you know, yeah. surreptitiously. Yeah, and you got Chloe at home, and she's yeah. lonely, yep. and... Mm -hmm. She said, I wonder what James Elroy is doing tonight. <laughs> and he was younger than yeah. he has hair. And all kinds Chloe of and shit. I did children's theater together when we were kids. Really? She's from Darien, Connecticut, and I'm from Norwalk, yeah. And you know where I live for a while, don't you? No. New Canaan. Oh, yeah. And Greenwich. I lived on Ponus Ridge Road in New Canaan. I lived on Ponus Avenue in Norwalk. It's a great shot. It's a great shot. And there I am. We talked a lot about how Robert thanks everybody for everything. You know, it's like wants to get in good with everybody. 
even the cab driver, thank you, you know. You notice that a lot, like, even when he does something for somebody else, he'll thank them. You know, I, I'm, I'm, an, I'm the type of actor who works, I think, trying to find connections emotionally, you know, and, and to work on a movie like this, which, which is a procedural, I mean, in a lot of ways, it's a there it's very procedural like in that there's so many details and connecting emotionally to those kind of very mundane details was always a struggle for me and the thing with fincher is that he i think he does find like a genuine um emotional connection to those things i wanted to ask you about zodiac well i appreciate the interest but we don't discuss open cases well what's going on with it there's a really subtle thing that goes on through this entire sequence, which I now will now blow because it's a subtle thing. But um, I saw finally Brad tipped me off to somebody picked up on it, um, I think, on the Internet. And it's that Toski never pays for a meal until the end of the movie. That's how he thanks him. It's this it's this sort of. Movie directors are the people. same way. Well, yes. Yeah, as, just as our, everyone in our business are scroungers. Yeah. And, and I always pay with two, both of you guys. Well, that's Me the too. thing. The producer always I pay, pays. I pay. I pay a lot of time. Yeah, you forced, you? yeah you forced yeah. to pay. Yeah. Did I ever let you pay? Yes. You let me pay. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I'll pay tonight. Okay. It's on you. Okay. My wife and I, first time she saw this after the scene, she said, I want a, I want a hamburger so badly. I know, I know. <laughs> after it, does, it, it is the most scrumptious looking he makes burger. This, and he must have, I mean, you know, knowing the amount it takes, how much burger do you think he ate this day? I mean, we're lucky if Mark- He's uh, fucking Italian. Italians love their jaw. This actually, this is actually Sean Callahan's, which is two and a half blocks from where I used to live in Santa Monica. And I used to sit two booths down in the morning when I was first trying to figure out how to write this thing from here. And just by complete coincidence. Saying one day Mark Ruffalo will, will be sitting sit. there as David Toski eating a scrumptious, scrumptious burger. Scrumptious. I actually use the word scrumptious. This scene and the scene with, with Downey in the bar used to be, in the very first draft, one scene um, because they were discussing – they're both talking about the books and the codes and stuff like that. And I ended up breaking them up and using them. But but I've always felt like I I, I didn't quite differentiate them enough. So that's one of those little things that, that bugs me. David said to me, sat me down like when we first talked about the script and he said, listen, I want you to know – the character, before you read the script, the character is, for the first half of this movie, is an extra. And then the second half of the movie, he gets to be the star. And actually, a big part of it was I said, well, I'm really, you know, I'm, I'm exhausted. I just did this movie, you know. And he said, well, look, this was, his, this was his explanation. He said, well, look, for the first half of the movie, you don't have to do much. You just have to be in the background. Liar. But the, <laughs> but the, but the, the, that, that was, that's, I think, what's kind of amazing about him in this movie is that, I've never seen a, a character be so part of the background, be so minusculio, to use your own word, at the beginning, and then eventually take over in such a big way. But shooting the first half of the movie and shooting it not in sequence, that's why I'm just saying that it was a stamina game. Because now I see the guys coming into his power, and now all these characters that have been set up are relating to you in a way where the mask is off, relating to you in a way where they're not seeing who you are, but you're seeing them. Right. And it's really, it's you and the lurking non-presence of who done it. That's the real case. Number two, four, three, one, one four, six. six. Yeah. DR. No, no, I think it's, I think it's two, four, three, one, four, six. One, four, six. Is it one, four, six? One, four, six. Yeah, okay. You're about to find out. DR. Who's going to be right? I thought it was one, six. Who's always right, Jamie? Ah, it's like that, eh? DR. Oh, there you go. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Yeah. 
Pay me. What would they have? Six man detective bureau? Tops. Six In Vallejo? Yeah. yeah. That sounds about right. That sounds actually. about right, yeah. yeah. This is going through. <laughs> well, Boward, Boward actually he said, you know, it really wasn't until the 80s that the murder rate just skyrocketed yeah. because of crack. Crack. When crack came in, yeah. You know, he said Vallejo used to be quite a little town. When we first went up oh, to wow. Vallejo, yeah. we stayed – I don't want to say the name of the hotel because I don't want to bes- besmirch their name. But, but we were staying near the – there was a park. There was a an park. amusement park. An amusement park that shouldn't shouldn't be named. And there and was a shootout that night. Every the, the thing is, lot. every cop we because we sat down with a lot of Vallejo cops and you know active and and George Boward who who weren't active and we go oh where are you staying? So we're staying near the park. They go seriously, you really don't want to be staying. And every cop we talked to, every was like, time we went back to the hotel, they insisted on giving us a, a ride. Yeah, yeah, they they yeah. followed. Behind and we, you know, we're sort of like ah, come on. And they on, actually, I don't know if I ever out. showed you this, but but uh, I think it was it was um, George Bowert's wife yeah. sent a newspaper clipping about the shootout that took place in the parking no, it wasn't lot. A of our hotel it was a knife fight. It was a. <laughs> was it a knife fight? <laughs> yes, it was a knifing. Um, because remember, there were we were amazed to, to see cop cars downstairs late at night. We were up uh, right drinking drinking scotch. This, by the way, is what – this is not made up. This is what Robert would yeah. do. He could not bring in a pen, so he would run back and forth. And this used to be even like he would go back and forth, back and forth, writing stuff down as quickly as possible. David told me that I, I was writing so fast that when they did the insert for it, because I was writing so – they didn't know how to write. I was tear. They did inserts and I was, they were tearing up the page because <laughs> no one can write that fast on a napkin. It looks like the music center there downtown, is it? Huh? Mm-hmm. Boy, Elroy. Uh, again? You know. Uh. <laughs> um, as far as you know, did anyone ever get in touch with Mike Mijot during your investigation and show him suspect photos? Like, well, he's Mike the- Mijot. We hired a private investigator to try to find Mike Mijot because he, he, very shortly after he was shot, he was in the hospital for a long, long time. And, um, his father owned a pest control business that he worked for. And when he got out, his father was furious about what he did to the business by being shot by the Zodiac killer. And said, I don't want to, something to the effect of, I don't want anything to do with you. You can go down south and live with your mother Mm -hmm. because you're just making things difficult for me. Completely abandoned him. And he moved down south um, and... I think he had some problems and uh, shortly after that ended up on the street. And he uh, he spent a lot of time in and around Vegas and we found him first in Clark County Detention Center. Right oh, off the street. County, county Jail. Yeah. 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 Okay. For vagrancy. Yeah. And I spoke to him for about 30 minutes on a video phone trying to ascertain exactly what was discussed in the car. Why was he With wearing Darlene all the layers of clothes? Uh, did Darlene know the guy? And we got a lot of clarity on some of those things. But they only allowed you 30 minutes. And then 30 you minutes, had to it, go, just, it just clicked off. And then you had to go to the set of another movie. And so I get a phone call from you saying, saying you, uh-huh. need to be, you need to be in Vegas in four hours um, because... He was going to be kicked loose. He was going to get kicked loose. There was going to be a court appearance and they were going to, you know, basically say time served and, you know, yeah, get out of yeah. here and stay out of trouble yeah. until the next time we see you. So my wife and I drive like a bat out of hell to Vegas, get there. Um, Our PI was waiting outside... The courthouse saw him in court. Mm-hmm. Then he was going to be processed out, and 
he waited and he waited and he checked in and he said, oh, yeah, they said we kicked him loose about 40 minutes ago. Exactly. And so then tried to, you know, our PI tried to find him throughout the course of the night, checked all the different flop houses. Basically, it was like, OK, he's probably going for a bottle and didn't end up finding him that night. And so I never got to speak to him. And then you you got to re-interview him. Later. We, we found him again yeah. living underneath a freeway overpass in Beaumont, California. And we found him. We we put him, checked him into a hotel, and we went down there with Brian Hartnell and uh, interviewed him. It was really, really fascinating. And and he then disappeared again. It's always hard to balance between tipping the audience off to a clue that is gonna actually get them somewhere, and and to, you know, because you could very easily say in that scene, which was a choice I initially made, which was like, "Excuse me, what?" <laughs> but. Of course the Zodiac could have called, and that's the way his mind worked. And it was like, wait, okay, so the Zodiac called, okay, but it was his birthday? Like, that that piece of information is so the eighth degree that this whole movie works in that world. You know, it's so, so difficult. I For me, it was very difficult as an actor to, like, to not make the choice that was the obvious choice. The choice is well, before, eight degrees over. Before know? I started shooting the next day, I came and you were shooting this scene. Oh, yeah. And they had... Ruffalo really sitting met. in one of the Toski outfits in a set chair on the phone with you. And I was like, wow, it's already pretty serious. And you see all these extras and all these people in a car, too. And he's talking about the way the cars are moving in the background. He's talking to you about things and pace. He was complaining, saying he was telling Ruffalo he, was, he sounded too much like uh, Clint Eastwood. <laughs> he, was, he was complaining about, like, the off-camera, like, phone feed. You guys spent a lot of money tracking people down. You know, it was really, I mean, it was really important to get this as close to, because, you know, I mean, again, you know, you're never going to get it exactly the way it was because it's impossible. But, you know, yeah. well, you know, what was amazing to me is actually how many true life stories are made where people don't do this stuff. I, I was sort of surprised to find that of people who are still alive and, you know, the, the filmmakers just kind of fake it. Well, that, that's you know? why it was even more important, I think. It's not like, you know, we're doing something like Jack the Ripper where it was, you know, a, a lot of these people, Mel Nikolai is still alive. Yeah. We spoke to him, uh, you know, Toski, Armstrong, uh, Brian Hartnell, Majot, their families, yeah. the, the families of the victims. They got to live in the neighborhood. The, you know, the, the weekend after the movie comes out, they got to go to the store. Yeah. You know what I mean? And what, yeah. so, you know, what's that going to be like if, if we, you know, yeah. and there were people we talked to who, who definitely said, listen, my life would be a lot better if you guys didn't do this. Yeah. Um, but since you're doing it, I'll tell you what happened. So, you know, trying to make that. Is, a lot of people you know, also felt that they wanted to set the record straight. Yeah, because there were so, so many myths had sort of come out over the years from stuff that, that you know, people thought um, happened at, at Lake Berryessa. I mean, you know, so many sort of famous Zodiac myths. It's the greatest crime movie ever made that shows you how big events make lives coherent decohere. It's the best at that, and it's the subtlest at that ever. And it's like the note that I sent to you know, Fincher after opening weekend, the one that, that Brad forwarded, obsession is as boring and vexing and banal as it is consuming. And lives get torqued and tweaked and diverted, yep. but rarely overcome. He survived. Yeah. He survived. You know, the dipshit kid, Gray Smith, mm -hmm. survived and flourished mm -hmm. in the end. Robert Gray Smith, the first thing that he was excited to show us was not a murder site, 
was not something about Zodiac. He wanted to take us to the local used bookstore to show <laughs> us first edition Ian Fleming novels that they had. Yep. Yeah. I mean, he he listened to to Dick Tracy radio shows, yeah. which yeah. he collects. He 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 asked me one day. He said, "Brad, do you like Dick Tracy?" I said, "Dick Tracy's okay." Yeah. I mean, with those words, yeah. Dick Tracy's okay. Yeah. I got a barrage of Dick Tracy material, those big little books or little big books. The, I mean, it's all in my office. I, I have tons of this material. And it's fascinating because Zodiac, in some ways, was just as fascinating and kind of, you know, this almost pop culture in the same way activity that was taking place that, that, except it wasn't happening over the radio. It wasn't unfolding on television. It was unfolding right outside and and he, there was this kind of going through the looking glass thing and i think i think in some ways he didn't realize that he was he had immersed himself oh, no, in not it at all i'm not sure you know it was a natural outgrowth of his fixations and his curiosities and it just bled over into real life and i don't think he had the presence of mind to look outside of himself as it was happening and really to understand the extent to which his life had been diverted and subsumed, he was just in it. And I wondered how startled he would be to see events transpiring over the better part of a decade compressed into two and a half That's why I was, worried. I was worried he was going to freak out. Yeah. I mean, legitimately, yeah. you know, it's not the – I think it's an honest portrayal of him. But it's not – listen, if, if anybody ever made the you know James Vanderbilt story and, and, and this is how I was portrayed, I probably wouldn't be the happiest camper in the world. And I think it's also a testament to him that he understands storytelling and he understands – he understands A, yeah, I was like that and yeah. I'm like that and B – you know, you you guys didn't pull a fast one on me. Or I don't even think he looked bad. at it like that. I yeah. think he just said, "That's a what a great movie! What a great movie, Brad!" What? Yeah, it's not in the least sensational, sordid, or squalid. And the portrayal, you know, you err on the side of on uh, of dignity. You know, with him, you don't show him there in his BVDs, picking his nose and eating it and smashing the flies. <laughs> you know, that all those scenes got cut. Yeah, all those scenes got cut. Yeah. Uh, you know, the other thing is, too, is when we talk to, you know, all these detectives and people, we, we there was sort of – we always sort of told them, listen, you know, there's only one villain in this movie yeah, and it's yeah. the Zodiac. This is off the record. A couple of years back, I was trying to get Marshall's prints. I handed him a photo. He looks at it. He's about to give it back and he stops and he says, my goodness, I got fingerprints all over this. And he wipes them off. Zodiac is actually one of the reasons that the FBI always comes in is because – Interjurisdictional stuff yeah. just gets completely fucked. People don't understand that. It's like the woman that interviewed Fincher and I for the LA Times thought there should have been conflict between Tosky and Armstrong. That it would have. Well, she's a much better things. screenwriter than I am, though, James. Come on. <laughs> you know, I mean, it's my fault. It's not about that. And that's what, that's what this film asks. It asks you to step back. And really dump your, your preconceived notions of what crime films are. Mm -hmm. And that, that's a lot for people. How do they know that Rick Marshall wrote the sign? My thoughts exactly. Rick Marshall was a Navy man. He received code training. He was also a projectionist at a silent film theater. Well, then how do I get copies of Rick Marshall's handwriting? Three I heard someone talking about um, who was a Raymond Carver ex expert or like a scholar in Raymond Carver novels. And they were talking about the mystery 
and how Raymond Carver, what he thought of, like what what a mystery novel really was. They said I was fascinated by it because they, I'd never really thought of mystery in this way, which is that the person who's searching out the mystery always starts off wanting it to be a certain way and so finding clues to make it that way. So the clues will always be arranged in the way that they believe the ending to be. But then once they hit a, a dead end and they realize that ending isn't the right one, no matter what they do to try and make the clues match, they then have to turn around and follow the clues to an ending they don't know. And that to me is like, you know, the human journey. That's what that's what being human is about. So often you reach a point in your life where you're trying to make all these different clues meet something that you think you want. And then when you hit the dead end, it isn't that. And a lot of ways what happens with Robert Graysmith in the second part of the story, which is he's convinced it's Rick Marshall from the beginning because of all these things that all these detectives said, and he looks up to them so much that he has to make every clue work. He finds himself in a, in a lot of really creepy, awkward places because of it, but in the end falls apart. His whole He totally falls apart as a character because he hasn't really found the real thing. Well, and also this part too that starts to happen is just a couple of minutes ago, the hunter became probably the hunted. And right. that now you're looking into the mirror darkly and, and that, that dark source is aware of you now. Right. And I think that's the thing that most people and why Graysmith is so brave and why this is really this hero's journey for lack of a better Campbell thing to say is so true is now you know that you really are close because he's chasing me because now he's aware of you and he's trying to put fear in you so now we see this next scene first of all in that last scene you looked much more formidable than you have for the entire rest of the movie before because now you know it's on right see what zodiac letter and dimension to you okay okay all Now, this is the thing that, you know, destroyed Dave Toski's career. We talk to, you know, we go around and talk to other cops from jurisdiction. They go, Toski, we go, yeah. They go, oh, he's the guy who wrote that letter, right? We say, no, no, he didn't write the letter. You know, it's that whole, you know, you print the accusation on page one and the retraction on page 38. But he's walked around for the better part of 30 years hearing that, you know, having most people in law enforcement think that he faked this letter. So I think a big thing for us was making sure it was clear. It was clear, you know, that, that whatever you want to say he did or didn't do in terms of solving or not solving the case, he didn't he didn't fake a letter, a Zodiac letter. And that was real important for us to get across. What do you think it is about human nature that forces people to just not put something down, that they can get so caught up, whether it's Zodiac or something much more mundane? You mean the riddle of obsession? Yeah. We want to know who we are and how we got to where we are and we think we'll feel a certain way if we can discover the key to an external event. Cops, a lot of the great cops, have one thing in common. They have internally disordered lives. They deal with a great deal of mental chaos, and they countermand their mental state by imposing order on external events. Mm -hmm. 
That's why I write novels, is it's all going on up here. Mm -hmm. And the best homicide detectives I know have that going. They just have to know. I have to know. Whatever it costs, whatever it takes. Yeah. Yeah, I have to know. And putting it straight, putting it in a line going, this yeah. goes here, this yeah. goes here, this yeah. goes here, this goes here. I mean, I feel the same way in terms of writing. It's that, that it's a that cathartic. It's a yeah, cathartic it's also, experience. Yeah. And then you know, at the end of this, they know. So what? Then what? The cocksucker's still on the loose. Yeah. Some people asked me, they said, well, Zodiac, Zodiac wasn't caught. So why make the movie? Yeah. And and I just kept thinking, God, well, I mean, if he was caught, we we wouldn't have made it. We don't. It would have been so much less interesting. He would have. Well, I mean, first of all, we don't have enough movies where the guy gets caught at the end. Second of all, uh, if he had been caught, he wouldn't. It wouldn't be famous. You know, there was. I mean, like you know, David. You know, David Berkowitz. When they found out he thought his dog was talking to him, became much less interesting of a guy. Yeah. Than you know the terrifying son of Sam. He retired. Is that what he told you? What are you saying? He's wrong. I'm saying stop calling my house. Ruffalo is very precise as an actor, and he's very fluent in his gesture, and he moves economically. He looks like he's a little guy. He's very precise in his gestures. You know, he's an East Coast Italian guy, and he's oddly Italianate. I mean, not oddly, but the you know the gesture mm -hmm. is there. You see him walking. You see him moving around. You know, he's a righteous. Mediterranean. Mm -hmm. It's in the way he grooms himself mm -hmm. and everything else. Whereas, you know, Gyllenhaal over here, all of his body language is diffident. Mm -hmm. You know, he's hovering, he's looming, he's holding back. And the only time he's emphatic is when he's making a point pertaining to the case. Yeah. You know, and even then he's just utterly sincere. Mm -hmm. uh, and they both have dignity, both of them. The other thing, too, is that Ruffalo went, I mean, you know, he went up to San Francisco. They both met with their counterparts, yeah. obviously, but Dave Toski has a very precise way of speaking and way of moving and way of, and, and Mark came back down and it was like, holy shit, yeah, yeah. he's got him, yeah. you know, he's got him down. Yeah. I mean, it, it wasn't an impression at all. It was yeah. just, that's Dave Toski. On June 19th, 1971. I know. In the execution of this, again, it probably became, you know, it's kids and it's this and it's dialogue and all that. But this was yeah. just such an important scene. Well, <laughs> because, you know, he's enlisted his own kids. You see, he will stop at nothing. He will stop at nothing. And That's... he's not hes not being an inappropriate dad, but he's right up against the line, ready to cross if necessary. I don't think I think his his issue of boundaries is like really important. You know, it's it that's what it that's to me was so interesting is somebody who doesn't cross boundaries in this obvious way with understanding of the, that it, of the individual so versus the bureaucracy too is your boundaries are still within the realm of you are hell bent. Everyone else's boundaries are still an issue of the department, it's an issue of this, it's personal frustrations coming up because of the right. department and you become part of the school of salmon, you mm -hmm. know, you're not deciding what stream you can even swim up. That's the thing is at this point, if you ask me, you're free, which is why, again, you also have my final approval here and I'm blown away. <laughs> this is yes. A... <laughs> was he sitting at a bar with an oxygen mask smoking answers, yes. toward the end? Let's talk about yes. also about this, this video that I recorded. Mm. I did some great improv that you don't even get to see. I'm so sorry. Fucking library. It was the most uptight moment I've ever had in a movie. I could only say three words. That is words. my hand, actually, by the way, writing that. Finally. That is my handwriting. Thank you so much. Hey, we found Linda. She's in jail. Isn't that great? 
Why'd you do it? Because she'll be able to identify Rick Martin. What are you talking about? You went on TV. You put yourself out there for him to see. Hun, you're being paranoid. Then who's been calling our house in the middle of the night at least once a week? Nobody. What's it going to take for you to be done with this? I can't talk about this now. I have to go see Bob Vaughn. That's too bad, because we're going to talk about this. And when is it going to be finished? When you catch him? When you arrest him? Be serious. She has the most thankless role in the movie. Oh, boy. And it's, and it's you know, it's it's tough. You know, I wish I had more time. I mean, it sounds, it's a long movie. I wish I had more time to kind of spend with her as a character because she's in danger of becoming the shrewish wife. You know, that you know sort what? of. But she, she does but an she, excellent job. She did such a great job with with not a lot. You know, on the on the page, unfortunately, you know, and that's well, he's my not fault. a drooler. He's not a nose picker. He hasn't abandoned the kids. He hasn't gotten strung out on crack cocaine. So in a sense, the stakes aren't that high. And that's very, very interesting here. That's that's where this film eschews the standard tropes of obsession mm-hmm. is he doesn't take it all the way into the shitter. Yeah. Right. Now, do you want to talk about uh, the upcoming basement uh, scene? Yeah, if if I've got if I've got Cavell's you know about the film, it's that the Rick Marshall digression goes mm-hmm. on a little long. Yeah, and the basement film is out of a horror film, and the way this actor here portrays it subtextually is the other fellow who left the shit with him was the lover. So he's I love he, that analysis. Yeah. Yeah, well, he's a you know he's the older gay guy whose boyfriend did him wrong and skedaddled and and and, and the film. That was in right. the canisters was actually in in your theory. What, what a the, film or something? They were the what? films that you said that he kept. <laughs> That's when he says yeah. when he's putting the you know in, and he talks about you know was it true that they had you know that this, this these canisters exist? This is about Rick Marshall. I have no occasion to correspond with him these days. Right. Yeah. He done me wrong. That's a Graysmith. That's out of the book. Too. I love that phraseology. Right. I have no occasion to correspond yeah. with him. Um, I did not think this is how the basement uh, discussion was going to go. <laughs> I have to be no. honest with you. No. It's out of, it's, it's out of a horror film. Yeah. Are there some screeching strings from Mr. Shire? I really like how, I mean, I think he, I think first of all, Fincher. Hang on. Here it comes. Yeah. Just the the. Sorry. I Shh. by the way, I love Charles Lynch. I quiet. They have the DVD, Brad. They can. Shh. You have the DVD. We. <laughs> I'd have to check my records. Why? Do you remember the Zodiac? This is about Rick Marshall, isn't it? He was a projectionist there, right? For a time, yes. But I have no occasion to correspond with him these days. Okay. This is the scene where everyone that I've talked to says they got. So scared. So scared. I know. I know. And got the payoff and felt like they had no idea what was going to happen. And uh-huh. suddenly they said, all right, we get it. We get it. We're watching. We understand. This is David taking his time and freaky. So that's Charles Fleischer, who is the voice of Roger Rabbit, who also did the voice, which is interesting irony that he did the voice of the guy at, at the um, TV station who said he was Sam. In case you thought it actually was creepy, he's the sweetest guy ever, and he's like at the opening with the kids, and, you know, they're all like, yeah. Daddy plays a creepazoid. I've known him since actually I was a little kid. Wow. I went to uh, elementary school with his daughter, Rachel, and um, I've known Charles since I was five years old. I remember going to see him at, like, the Laugh Factory and stuff when we were a little kid. So he's a really great comedian. He also has a lot of theories about the universe, and he's got a pretty incredible mind. 
his rhythms too are odd. You know, sometimes I didn't know if it was that he was trying to figure out the date, but it, it was like 1970, 1972. <laughs> you know, it's like, like he wanted to make sure what cent he was correct on the century first. <laughs> yeah, seriously. <laughs> I love those choices. Let's see. It was. 17, 14, 13, 1972. It's a real um, testament to the fact that comedians are great in movies like this, you know, playing sort of creepy characters because timing is so important. The other thing is, I don't, you know, this is directed so well because he actually convinces you he would go down in the basement, you know, yeah. whereas yeah. I would just run like hell. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It's also, yeah. The world's, yeah. the world's creepiest basement, which also contains records of yeah. the silent film theater. But this is all, you know, this is the closest, you know, Robert came to really being in danger. And I think that that's why we really You know, I do believe it. this was an accurate representation of Robert's oh, yeah. memory of memory how of this it. happened. I don't He's know why, by the way, there's a phone in the basement. It's the weirdest thing. But <sighs> Also, I, I just think this is amazing technologically. This room and this scene was shot with only those two 40 or 60 watt light bulbs there's no other light source you know what helen canode said and helen canode my ex-wife best-selling novelist former film critic for the la weekly single most brilliant human being i've ever met said on the message that she left me that night which was the night that brad and i you know went to to see it with the rubes at the grub mm. she said it's a luminous work of art and it's the revelation of a master whoa and you gave him the words, Jamie. Uh, yeah. Do you think he saw the film in our theater and was inspired? Jake. Who are some other actors who are considered for the, for the leads? No one. I don't know what you're talking Jake? about. We got yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, Jake was the first guy we went to yeah. mm -hmm. for Graysmith. He was mm -hmm. the first actor we went uh, to. What about we Ruffalo? We had a lot of our first choices. It was yeah, Ruffalo. Ruffalo was yeah. I mean, the the great thing about having David Fincher is, direct the movie, yeah, yeah is, everybody wants you. Yeah, you get you get Adam Goldberg to do one scene. You get you know Dermot Mulroney to play the captain. Mm -hmm. You know, it's mm -hmm. it's um, you know, who doesn't want to do this? You know, Clea Duvall, who's coming up, who I think just brilliant kills it in one scene. You know, it's like. You Who get her play? in for a day. She, she plays uh, Linda Del Bueno. She plays Darlene's oh, sister. Oh, Jesus. And she just... with the And the bruises oh. are on the arm. Yeah, yeah. It's such a, you know, and it's like, for me, it's such a gift to get somebody of that caliber to do even those small roles, you know, because they just, they just get James it. James LaGrosse. Yes, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. You know, yeah. Ione Sky to do, you know, just to, to be silent and to do that really, really well. Oh, driving this car was hard. Why? Old stick. <sighs> like we were always driving on hills because it's San Francisco. And oh my god! The car had to always be. You had to like, and I had to do everything quickly because you wanted the pace of the scene to work. So it was like, put in the brake, turn off car, pull up the thing, pull e brake, you know, stop, make sure the car not rolling. I pulled it up enough. Open up the door. Pretend like I was locking. There's so many things that were like. I know it sounds like, oh, uh, you mean like chew gum and walk at the same time, you idiot actor. <laughs> but it really was. It really was a difficult thing. And the pacing of getting out of a car that's not a modern car when you mm -hmm. when the director wants you to move quickly 
You know, that's not the important part. I love this too, man. That's tough. It's really hard stuff to do when you get that kind of news. She's left and she's taking the kids. And we, then that transition from this that. This transition the very, was really, really hard to figure out because really, that was a big hole that we couldn't figure out. Fantastic. And then we decided, what if it's on the opposite side of the paper? And then we shot the scene where I write it after. Linda? I've never seen this one before. This and is Clea Duvall? Clea Duvall, Clea yeah. Duvall, yeah. Did you get my note? What's this about? Zodiac. Vegas. You got the look? What look? I, I didn't mean anything. Tell me about this painting party. I told the cops about that so long ago. Mm. The painting party is also sort of one of those things in Zodiac lore that's that's yeah. that's hotly debated whether whether it existed or not. And I mean, you know, going through all of this, it was really important for us to obviously vet as much as possible, but to also tell what Robert's experience was, what yeah, Dave Tosky's <clears throat> experience was. This was not about us making an objective movie in terms of truth. This is about telling their story as they went through this and got sucked through it. Yeah, you have to understand whether he was right or wrong, this is a dramatization of these people's experiences, as, as you were just saying. Yeah. And Robert believed that there was a water connection and people pointed out to him that they thought that was silly, that was wrong. but that's still yes. what he believed. And so Robert believed that there was this man at the painting party that was reported to him by Linda, who was wearing this suit and everybody was afraid of this person. And, uh, and then that person was Zodiac. Yeah. How can you be sure? It's a long time ago. Think hard. I am thinking hard. It was Rick. No, it wasn't. It was Rick, it was Rick Marshall. No. Just say it. It wasn't Rick. And Robert Gray Smith and Dave Tosky both firmly believe that Arthur Lee Allen was the Zodiac Killer. Who does? Bauert, you were saying? Sorry. Bauert does too. Bauert does yeah. too. Uh, Gray Smith and Tosky. Yeah. Pretty much yeah. everybody. Ken Narlow doesn't. Mm -hmm. um, I think Ken thinks it's. Ken, uh, Ken, Ken has always said Rick Marshall, Rick Marshall was his favorite suspect. Yeah. yeah. In the end, it's not really about that. I think that's what was Some people a, believe Zodiac was BTK. Yeah. Some people believe he's Ted Kaczynski. That's a big one. You know, the interesting thing is that the case against Arthur Lee Allen, while it is fully circumstantial and there is no smoking gun, it is true that there are lesser circumstantial cases that have led to convictions in court. And I always wondered, you know, if Allen had survived and if the the uh, charges were leveled and the case was brought by the DA of Solano County and it went to court, what would have happened? I think it's it's not really clear. No. If that went to a jury, where they would have come out. Scott Peterson. Yeah. The case against Scott Peterson, I think, was much weaker than the case against Arthur Lee Allen. And the case against Arthur Lee Allen is not as strong as the case was against OJ. But at the same time... Post-OJ... You know, things have things have been fucked up by CSI and OJ and Robert mm -hmm. Blake and, and you know those acquittals. 
back then people would convict off a very strong circumstantial case. Now the whole legal water has been muddied. They'd have convicted him, I think. The, I yeah. think I think they would have too. But the bigger the bigger issue was whether they were going to file. But yeah. I mean, and that that is a that is definitely a big issue. But I think also yeah. the fact is yeah. that they couldn't bring it and and. It's sort of – I don't want to say it's a good thing that they couldn't bring the case, but I think part of the thing this movie's about is it's really good this process exists. It's really good the world doesn't work like it does in Dirty Harry. It's really important or that, that is due process – yeah, but I mean at least it's – Sometimes it's it is and sometimes, sometimes it, it isn't. isn't. Sometimes it isn't and sometimes, you know. That's what's dramatically intimidating of, of this film is that is, is you know, greatest crime fiction crime films can be. There's just an enormous level of contrivance in order to sustain suspense. You know, I think and, it's – And it's absent here. I think it's really hard for police officers like Bill Armstrong who believe so fervently in the system that the system – can fail. And because if Arthur Lee Allen was Zodiac, then that means that the process of investigation, the process of finding hard evidence and needing hard evidence in order to bring it to a grand jury, getting right. a but, DA. But I know what you're saying, but I, I also think that it's, you know, at the, in the you know deepest, darkest night, you kind of go, did the system fail or did I fail? And I mean, I yeah. think that's and I think what both of those how questions do you, are hard. How do you kind of live with that? Both how of those you, questions yeah. are very hard, I think, for, you know, for a good cop to yeah. confront and to do. And with. I also, you know, at the end of the sort of, you know, wonderful two and a half hour jerk off session we've just performed. Yeah. Um, I do want to say that really what we wanted to do was just sort of set out and tell this story and and try and in a lot of ways stay out of its way because it is really interesting and not movie it up too much not fuck with it too much and that sounds it's a lot more difficult than it sounds to not fuck it up to not hollywood it up to not make shit up where it would be easier to kind of go oh let's just make up a scene here that bridges this and this and this and let's not say it took 13 months for them to get the warrant and let's not you know well this is the best case for truth is stranger than fiction yeah i mean you just didn't need to make it up it was right there and I think that's one of the things that, you know, David really kind of made us focus on was, no, show the, the interrogation of Alan. I mean – And kept us honest. That's yeah. the thing. You know, I mean, he really, really sort of kept us honest with this entire thing. Called the Bill House. December 69. I need to kill. Today's my birthday. It was his birthday. Arthur Lee Allen was born on December 18th. This ending here, I mean, this is, you know, the moral conclusion of the film. Oh, my God. My favorite scene in the movie is the one coming up at the diner. Yeah. Also, I like a movie that climaxes with, you know, the two guys, you know, having breakfast, talking, you know, yeah. that that's an emotional climax, I think, is, you know, in today's day and age of car chases and hugs and, 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 and <laughs> yeah, you know, I mean, it, it is. I it, like hugging scenes. What do you want, Albert? The, 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 the nuance, the subtlety, the the way that that scene, this upcoming scene is is performed by the actors and directed by David, the the way that the 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 song fades into yeah. the score, the it's it's really perfect. Bolnick said that he was your favorite suspect. That you spent two years on him, and, and that nobody ever came close. All the evidence said no. Sherwood disqualified his handwriting. The same Sherwood that drinks like Paul Avery now. 
Yes, you have Sherwood Morrow in writing saying, I'm sorry, this just won't work, but you also have Terry Pascoe. His protege. Yeah, fine, it's his protege, but he's a handwriting expert nonetheless, and he's saying, do not disqualify this suspect on the basis of handwriting, so the two cancel each other out. Well, they don't. The talk about this was that Mark always knew that it was Arthur Lee Allen, obviously, from the moment he meets him in his job. And sometimes things aren't resolved, you know? Sometimes the things you want a resolution to, you have to, that aren't externally resolved, you have to resolve on the inside, even though everybody believes something else, or they won't allow you to get full satisfaction from it. And so when I keep trying to put this information towards him, at the end, and I try and tell him, well, there's this, and there's this, and there's this, it has to be Alan, it has to be Alan, this, and this, and there's this, and he says, it doesn't matter, it's all circumstantial. That's not what this entire movie's been about. The movie is about, you can't prove it, you just have to know it in you. And I, and I believe that's why these men, these two men, to this day, meet every every couple of weeks and discuss the case and get together in a diner and, and talk and are close. Because somewhere in them, they know. They both know, know that it is Arthur Lee Allen. That Allen is fired from molesting his students and his family discovers that he's a pedophile. Now, when do the letters begin? July 69. After the murder of Darlene Farron. And they continue until you go to see him at work. This is damn tough dialogue to get out. Yeah. You know, I mean, this is just exposition, this is, exposition, exposition, brilliant exposition. performance. I mean, it's, it really is, the, it's a perfect scene. For three years. Then in 74, he feels comfortable again because everybody's moved off Allen as a suspect. And what do we get? Three new letters from Zodiac in January, May, and July in 74. But then the letters stop. What happens to Alan? He's arrested. Also, the, you know, the others, we worked at, we worked at dialogue so hard, and David was really good about sort of protecting the text. You know, because a lot of times you get, you know, an actress, I've got to say it this way because it's easier maybe for me. And But when you're dealing with so many facts and figures, yeah. you kind of can't fuck yeah. around with it that much. And so he was very good about saying, no, 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 it's like this. Okay. Zodiac had to have known Darlene Farron, right? Yes, because of the phone calls on the night of her murder. Because Dave Toski, by the way, wears a gun everywhere he goes to this day. <laughs> um you know, I caught it the first time we met him, you know, and he's, you know, 71 now. Yeah. And he came to the meeting packing heat. Upside just, down. Just exactly. This, you know, the bullet holes, just in case some shit jumped off, I guess, you know. I would love to see Dave Tosky just pull the gun in some situation. I mean, can you imagine? <laughs> I think we can arrange for him to draw it down oh, on you fancy. if you'd like. Not on me. I just want oh, to be, no, I want to be an you. innocent bystander. Yeah. Arthur Lee Allen? Lived in his mother's basement on Fresno Street. Door to door. That is less than 50 yards. Is that true? That was always the most convincing thing to me. And then it's sort of, you know, in writing it, it's what's the last yeah. card you play? Yeah, look at the look on his face. It. Look at the look on yeah. his face. It's so gorgeous. It's pro yeah, it's processing it and it's he wants to say it, but he can't, but yeah. you know. The prince, the handwriting. I'm not asking you as a cop, but I am a cop. I can't prove this. Just because you can't prove it doesn't mean it's not true. Easy, dirty, Harry. Finish the book. You're a writer. I'm a cop. It's also this kind of idea of I'm a writer writing about 
a writer, Robert Gray Smith, who's writing about a writer, you know, the Zodiac, who got famous not by his killing, but by his writing. I mean, it's in a lot of ways, this is about the power of the written word. Yeah. And 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 what it can do to uh, an entire community, what it can do to people's lives just by writing a couple letters. This was the scene I always pitched when people said, how do you, how, they don't catch him, how do you end it? I go, well, this is, I pitch in the hardware store scene and they go, okay. You know, just going back to, to obsession and, and the question of why, why make the movie when, when you don't know, there is something amazing that the imagination can do when the answer isn't there and you just build something up into your mind that's so scary and so full of these horrible things. That if you were ever to define it, it would lose a lot of that power. Yeah, and I and that's think that's what this is. I think that's this moment. That's that's the catharsis for Graysmith is to look him in the eye, and here he is, this sad, fat, diabetic guy working behind the counter of Ace Hardware, and that's all you are. Fincher said, um, "You don't have to uh, kill all the rattlesnakes. You just have to know where they are." Most movies, this would be anticlimactic, but to me, this is the whole payoff of who Graysmith has become and that he goes there in such surety. That's a perfect moment of like, I knew if David had done what he wanted to do, I didn't have to do that much at all. It's one of those great moments, you know, people come up to you and they're like, what you did in that scene. <laughs> oh my God. I mean, I just, you know, and you're like, thank you, David Fincher. Or you say... <laughs> Thank you, because that's, that's not our job. Like, yeah. that's where we carry all that stuff, and we get to take the credit for that. We fudge a little about the fact that Robert's book would still be on the bestseller chart, but that's okay. That's okay. Um, it was probably still yeah. being sold at airports. Airports, what a business that is, man. Ooh. It is true that, that the attention that his book brought back to the case. Absolutely, and we had we had a lot of police officers tell us that. I mean, you know. Nobody in the police force is a fan of the citizen cop, but at the same time, it's undeniable that the publicity that Robert's, you know, book brought really reignited this. And, you know, in, in Bowert's interrogation of, uh, of Alan, I mean, he's he's referencing material that that he clearly learned that he told us he learned in, in Robert's book. Yeah. I want to talk to you on the phone. I'm George Bowert. Alejo PD. I took over for Jack Molex. And, you know, Graysmith didn't get all of it right. No. But but that's you know. But he I mean, got a lot of it right, and and he was the first guy to actually go to all of these different jurisdictions and even make an attempt to put all of this stuff together and present it to the world yeah. to anyone who cared to say, okay, here are the pieces. And he's taken a lot of shit for doing that over the years. I think you know, not rightfully so. I mean, I think you know what he did is really really incredible, and um, hats off to him. Wilson did a better job than I did. One of those days. Hey, Robert. You fucking dipshit. There he is. Yeah. That's the guy. Elroy, I got to say, by the way, I want to get to the point in my life where if I'm a fan of something, I can just come and do the commentary on it. <laughs> <laughs> I think that'd be pretty cool. That's that's hilarious. <laughs> I wish John Carroll Lynch were here. We could have some yucks with him, right? Yeah. And Cleo Duvall. <laughs> 
Just the two of them. Just the two of them. Yeah. I think that'd be a good commentary yeah. track. Would actually be. Yeah. And Ioni Sky and, and Donovan can come in and play Hurdy Gurdy well, now, which is coming up in a second. <laughs> we, which we ruined that song for all time, which I'm very proud of. I love the fact that you know you can take something that people really like and go, yeah. oh, I can never listen to that song the yeah. same way again. Yeah. Majo told us, by the way, that that uh, when he was called in by Boward and when he was told that he was going to be shown a group of photographs, he didn't think. He said, you know, I barely got a glimpse of the guy. Yeah. And Boward didn't think either. Yeah. And he said, uh, he said when, when he saw the picture, he was completely unprepared for the fact that, that he was able to make an identification. But he said that was the guy. Getting these title cards was incredibly difficult to get. Yeah. All of this exactly right. We were working on there's, this. Thing. And there's a lot of information that, you know, we had to leave out including the fact that when Alan's house was finally raided by police, they found a lot of pretty damning material. Yeah. No smoking gun. No. But some guns. But some guns. But some guns. They weren't and smoking. S- and some bombs. They found bombs under the he house. He probably did it. But we don't know for sure. And in the end, that's not really the point, you know? There it is, another fine piece of filmed entertainment from Warner Brothers Paramount. <laughs> Thank you for joining us. Thank you for having us. Don't let your the door home. hit your ass. And again, like we said, for a wonderful time, two mic stands, two earphones, two chairs, you yourself can make your own commentary. Yeah. Think on it. Thank you guys very much. Thank you. Yes. I want to thank James Elroy, yes, the oh, demon absolutely. dog. Uh, listen, what a gas. Hopefully we'll all meet again in Zodiac 2. Oh, oh, oh.